Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are joining us. We are recording this Sunday, May 24th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. Yes, this is Memorial Day weekend. Happy Memorial Day. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Let's just start right out. Uh, Todd, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I don't know about this week, but, like, we're almost nine holes through this, like, awesome live sporting event. It's a golf tournament. And, uh, yeah, Tom Brady pretty much sucks, but uh, he did make a, he did hole out from, like, 120, so. It's, it's entertaining mostly because I have a bet on this game. So, or match, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you want to call it a game because, you know, Peyton and Tom are involved. Did you see the, the, uh, pregame on the, on the, uh, the driving range, Peyton talking talking some crap to to Tom Brady. Yeah, it was pretty great. So so uh, Zach, you'll appreciate this. They uh, they asked um, Peyton if he could have had a caddy, who would he have had? And he said, Well, you know, Eli would have been good with Tom out here. That would have been a good one to have as my uh, as my caddy, or maybe Nick Foles would have been a good one too. Um, I could, I could have just had, well, I know he said, uh, he said, I, I know who Tom would have had. He would have had uh, Rob Gronkowski out here since he just does whatever Tom tells him to do. Um, and then, uh, or, you know, and then he's like, you know what? The best caddy would have been Bill Belichick. That would have really gotten in Tom's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, Peyton's pretty Bra- much just Brady was like, stop. Yeah, Brady was, like, stopping mid-swing on the driving range, listening to him, just laughing. It was pretty great. Or maybe Bernard Pollard. He would have been a nice caddy for Peyton. I don't know, like... Dallas Clark. (laughs) Michael Strahan. And then it's raining there, so Brady said, I don't know how we're going to do. Peyton's a a dumb quarterback, so... Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. They had some pretty good smack back and forth between them. All I remember is that in the battle of hosting SNL, Peyton destroyed Tom Brady. It wasn't even close. Oh, yeah. Tom Brady was not not very good. It was kind of like, Peyton's... you know, every Super Bowl he played the Giants. Just didn't didn't show up. Peyton's a funny guy. Peyton also destroyed Eli in the hosting SNL competition. Oh, I don't remember right. Eli hosting that. Okay, I'll have it, to it was, deep dive. It was not very good. I'll have to deep dive that this week, or maybe not. <laughs> well, Zach, what have you been watching? All right, well, uh, I don't watch golf, so I watched um, the half of it, the movie that both you and Todd watched ah. uh, last week. Now, funny story that, you know, an off-air incident. We went how many days, Terry, where I thought you had reviewed a different movie than the half of it? I thought it was the entire week. Yeah, it was a, an entire week. And I, I had even edited the entire episode, and I still thought I, I thought you had reviewed the movie To the Stars, which uh, had a very similar premise, at least reading about it. And also, Bardinelli gave it two and a half stars and said that the ending wasn't as good as the first two thirds. So throughout the week, I, I thought it was To the Stars you watched, and I was getting ready to watch To the Stars, and then I realized 
uh, I don't really have access to it. It's not on Netflix like they said it was. They watched a different movie. So, yeah, I'm an idiot. Um, yeah, I don't know why that wow. happened. But it, anyway, I'm glad I watched uh, the real the half of it. Actually, I'm not that gra- glad because I completely disagree with both of you. I really didn't like this movie very much. Um, I thought it was, uh, I, I was expecting like a three star movie. Both of you gave it three stars and like, what the hell? This movie is not very good. Like it, it has a very, you know, predictable premise, very Cyrano de Bergerac. And, uh, you know, it's That's got, what I said. it's got like cute characters in it, but I mean, okay, first of all, first problem with this movie, let's get real for a second. What teenager reads the book, the remains of the day. Okay. That's just not happening. All right. That that's just not. <laughs> and then what teenager watches Vim Vendor's movies. Okay. And then disguises the fact that, you know, she's texting for this guy. She's, you know, the Cyrano de Bergerac figure. And then the girl believes that this doofus, uh, who doesn't say anything would watch the Vim Vendor's movies. Like, there were so many implausibilities um, in the plot. Uh, I really didn't like anything about this movie. I'm only giving it, like, a pretty generous two stars because I did... I, I, I liked the references to other movies, which Terry alluded to in his review of it. And I guess I liked the girl and her father, but I thought the whole, like, romantic triangle element was just really bad. And there, there's no teenager in the universe that acts like that. Yeah. It was very valid points. Very, I still it, liked it. It was very commercial, you know, and and I feel like the characters in this movie wouldn't like the movie they were in. Like she would have been too cool for it. She would have <laughs> given it thumbs down. I I would agree with that. The characters in this movie would have not liked their own movie. Yes, but, but I mean, couldn't everybody say that about their high school experience? That's probably true. Um, <laughs> someone though somewhere should watch To the Stars, which is with Kara Hayward and Liana Liberato and did get two and a half stars from Berardinelli. So, someone should watch that. Sounds like you did. All right. <laughs> All right, well, uh, for uh, the, what I watched this week, what I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about my anniversary movie I watched this week, the net latest Oscar nominee that's celebrating an anniversary that I uh, checked off my list was Longtime Companion from 1990, 30-year anniversary, I had had one Oscar nomination for Bruce Davison, which uh, I always remembered because it added his name to the list of X-Men characters that got nominated for an Oscar after he played Senator Kelly. Um, But this movie is... uh, This is kind of a pretty depressing movie. Um, I felt watching it... So the the premise of this movie is it's a group of... um, of friends kind of uh, gay men that are friends working through the eighties as the AIDS outbreak happens. And honestly, one by one, they start dying of AIDS. Um, uh, This uh, movie felt like dated yet ahead of its time at the same time, like watching this movie, I felt there's no way uh, a film like Philadelphia that Tom Hanks won an Oscar for happens three years later. If longtime companion hadn't come out in 1990. Um, it's, I actually really liked it. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Um, I thought it was a really powerful movie. Bruce Davison, uh, is just kind of one of the guys, but he, he has that scene and, uh, where he's, uh, he's sitting, uh, next to his, uh, his boyfriend who's in bed about to die. Um, and it is it is an amazing scene of uh, of incredible emotion yet restraint all at the same time. 
Um, it it was it was a powerful, moving uh, film. Uh, yeah, three and a half stars from me. I think Todd, you've seen this, right? Yeah, I saw it years ago. I I'm looking at it now. I give it two stars. I don't really remember it being that uh, impactful to me, but uh, I'm glad you got something out of it. Well, like I said, it felt a little dated, but also at the same time, I could see how it was like this groundbreaking film and how it felt it felt important as I was watching it. Not like they were trying to make something important, but it felt important. Kind of like how kids feels important when you watch it. It's like, yeah, this is a dated movie, but it's important. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but... Uh, you know, everyone talks about Philadelphia being the first, like, big Hollywood movie to deal with AIDS and gay men. And this movie, like, predated Philadelphia, did it not? I mean, yeah, 1990. So, it, it probably deserves more attention. This was, like, the first movie that um, it, it said, I was reading something that said it's the first movie where AIDS was a major plot point that was ever made. So, um, so yeah. It, it, was, it was definitely an interesting watch, for sure. All right. Well, now let's get into the important stuff. Zach, what are you drinking? Uh, before I get to that, what? how long until we get the first film with COVID as a major plot point? Like, do you think that will happen by the end of the year? Like, in a, in a uh, narrative, you know, scripted movie? Not not the end of the year, no, because no because films are being in production. made. <laughs> I guess that's true. I would like say... Soderbergh. That's true. 2023. Or maybe like Vince Gilligan is doing another Breaking Bad movie under wraps and no one knows about it and it's about COVID. 2023. That's what I'm saying. So is that banking on the idea that movies won't go into production anytime in the next two years? I I think it's just going to take, it's going to take that long for them. Now, are we talking like, like actual like Hollywood movie or made for TV? I, I guess anything. I mean, I'm thinking about, like, you know, The Deer Hunter and Coming Home come out, you know, about five years after after uh, the Vietnam War. We got United 93 World Trade Center. That's about five years after 9-11. So, I mean, you're kind of right in that the estimate historically would say, you know, probably a good at least maybe three or four years. So, you're probably mm-hmm. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. Okay, what are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, old trusty Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale beer. I gotta, I gotta get this beer out of my refrigerator at some point and into my stomach. There we go, Todd. What do you got? Uh, I'm drinking El Himno Reposado tequila with some uh, white cr- cranberry grape juice. So no white cranberry peach. Yeah, either way, it's pretty good. Tequila, nice. Just something to make it not be drinking it straight. Yeah, well, it's not exactly good tequila, so you need a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we went to the brewery again, Ridgewalker Brewery in Forest Grove, and uh, picked up another one of their beers. So today I am drinking the uh, the Strong Bad Strong Ale. The reason why it's called the Strong Bad is because it has over 10% alcohol content. So Nice. There we go. And I had to get it because it's named Strong Bad. I mean, that just made me happy. So, So cheers to Homestar Runner. Absolutely. All right. Well, the one thing we all watched this week, and it's now wrapped up, so we're going to wrap up our conversation on this. We've been having it for the last few weeks, and that is our conversation around The Last Dance. We're a week removed from the premiere of the last two episodes. Um, Zach, tell us uh, about the last two episodes and kind of wrap it all up for us. 
Okay, well, the last two episodes, uh, I mean, it, you know, I may get a, a couple details wrong. It's been a couple days since I watched it, but I believe uh, the episode nine was about Jordan's famous or infamous flu game, which he dispelled, and it was not the flu game, actually. It was the food poisoning game, which leads me to have many, many questions about the quality of pizza cuisine in Salt Lake City that you can get at 10 p.m. at night. I mean, that is just, that's a whole, like, other conspiracy theory out there, like, and we can talk about that. And then the 10th episode was kind of the wrap-up episode, you know, it culminates in the uh, in the famous Game 6 shot and uh, I do have to say, watching that that last shot again, um, it, Jordan does not really push up, push off. I kind of agree with Bob Costas's view that it was essentially like a Mater D uh, tapping someone's back and leading them into uh, the dining room. I hadn't seen that shot in a while, so um, I don't know. I feel like uh, saying that he got away with something is is not exactly accurate. I think that is a clean final shot. I agree completely with that assessment. That was I always thought he pushed off. Um, and then, uh, especially after, you know, talking, going through, watching, like, the, the series uh, that he had with the pit, uh, the Pacers, which I think was also in Episode 9, and you see you see the ultimate push-off that Reggie Miller had to hit the game-winner there. Um, yeah. That <laughs> was like, a push-off. That just, was him creating space before he had the ball. That's not a, a push-off. Yeah, yeah cre- cre- creating space. A, ge- a gentle nudge that would have, you know... That Before might even be called a personal foul on, on okay, football. But it doesn't here's matter. The, here's the thing he with like, the Jordan. He, like, the hardcore li- tried to lay yeah. him out. Yeah, for, <laughs> force the officials to make a thing. Well, okay, here, uh, that Jordan shot, the the problem with what you guys are saying is that he was heading that way, and just the, the slightest nudge would have shoved him like he almost fa- falling over. That's like if you're doing a bench press or something, you get someone just giving, like, the tiniest bit of pressure. That's going to help you lift the, the bar up all the way. That's what he did. He put his hand on his hip. And he pushed him, even though he was already going that way, he went violently that way because he gave him the, a nudge because that's where the momentum was going anyway. Like, you can't say yeah. that's not a foul. I, 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 I still agree with Costas, though. And, and, and I thought he, he said it perfectly. He, he didn't push him. It was like a maitre d' showing him to his table. That's a te- I mean, it's a terrible I, I, analogy. I always, I always, and I always thought it was a, it was a major push-off. But especially I mean, it, watching some of the replays and then watching Reggie Miller, right, watching Reggie Miller, that was, that should have been called a foul. <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was a foul, but that's not a push-off. You didn't have the ball yet. That's an off-ball yeah, foul. Yeah, but still. Yeah. So one of the questions that I have after watching the final episode is, you know, there's a sense of a little bit of regret. You know, it's like it's like L Driver asking Bud, is there relief or regret? Well, with Jordan, it seems like there's regret. It seems like he left something on the table because he's talking about that they could have won number seven. Do you guys think if if Jordan comes back the next year, uh, they win number seven? Well, first no. of all, I don't think there's any way Pippen was coming back, so they wouldn't have won anyway. And right. there is that's, no way in that's hell thing I was thinking too. that team would ever have matched up with Robinson and Duncan. That team would have gotten swept if they played the Spurs. There's no. That's a terrible matchup. That's worse than frickin' yeah, what are, we getting, are, are they going to put, like, Longley and Wennington out there to try and match up with the... Uh... Exactly. I mean, Rodman yeah. could body up Duncan, but he... I mean, he, Duncan could make shots from outside the key. There's no way that they could have beaten that Spurs team. Okay, but the East winner that year is the eight-seeded Knicks, who, you know, the, the Bulls basically own. I mean, you're right, the Spurs would have been, like, a tougher matchup, but I don't doubt they could have gotten back to the finals, maybe without even without Pippen. Pippen. it would have been really hard. Wasn't that also the lockout shortened season? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, you add that to the equation, and 
and losing Pippen and Jordan having to do it all on his own and creating a new team chemistry around what they had, um, I don't know. I don't know. It would have been tough. Uh, I think I, Jordan looks back on it with regret, but I think I think he I think it was a perfect ending. Now here's the thing that I was somewhat disappointed because it, they talk about all the regret and things like that, and not once in the entire thing I thought they were going to add it on as a little tack on at the end. Did they mention him playing with the Washington Wizards? Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. No, they because didn't, they didn't I felt. Yeah, they didn't say anything about it, but you could tell that happened because he felt like he left something on the table. And you, through everything he talked about, about being the ultimate teammate and, and pushing his teammates and to be better, as the owner looking at this team, he said, the only way I know how to make this team any better is to be on the floor with them and push them to be better. And instead, it ruined Kwame Brown's career. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I that ha- I felt like that had to be mentioned, and if it wasn't like the Michael Jordan show and him calling all the shots, I think it would have been something that had to be brought in at some point. Why did he play for the Wizards though? That he wasn't owner; he was a part owner of yeah. the Bobcats eventually. Uh, why? No, why no, he, he owned part he owner the, the winners. Wizards. He owned the Wizards at that point. Part ownership, yeah. So yeah, he he was part owner of the Wizards and came and came out of retirement, gave up his share to play and try and improve the team he was trying to build. And then he went to the Bobcats. That's kind of weird. Yeah, well, because after he after he retired again, he uh, he never got his shares back of the Wizards. He just cut bait and ran. In a similar way that uh, a similar criticism of yours, Terry, I want to know why they didn't show any of the Hall of Fame speech. Because to me, the Hall of Fame speech is the ultimate example of pettiness of uh, going after, uh, settling old scores, going after, you know, his high school teammate or whatever. Like, I love his Hall of Fame speech. See, I watched that right after the episode, and he says in his Hall of Fame speech that he had the flu in that game. So, I mean, he's just making (laughs) shit up now, and it's completely ridiculous that that nobody calls him out on that. LeBradfield Smith, man. That's all it is. I I think this was like a 10-part series of, like, extending that Hall of Fame speech. And him just showing that he has not, he has not lost any animosity for for some of these guys. Okay, so the food poisoning flu thing. I have some I have some serious like issues with the whole story. Like, okay, one like where's room service? I mean, he's in a hotel, <laughs> and I don't care if it's the only place open in all of Utah or whatever. There, if if it is at like eleven o'clock at night, there's not five people working there that are gonna go deliver to a, a specific hotel room. And there's no way they would actually know it was Michael Jordan. He wouldn't have given his name or anything like that. It, it, it makes no sense that they, that they could have poisoned his food and that there would be five people showing up at his door to deliver it. Plus, how do you poison a pizza? Like, what, what they put nefarious sauce on top of it and, ooh, maybe they, they sneezed on it? Like, what are you, how do you poison a pizza? Do you undercook the meat? I don't, and, I don't understand and who, why I had to who change in between it. games eats an entire pizza. Yeah, that was another... But I, <laughs> I feel like that's a little bit more realistic. I could see that. I mean, some people can't eat a whole pizza, but... You think that I, could be why I, he threw up two hours later? Is because he just ate a whole pizza? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I could see pizza and cigars bringing about a, a violent case of food poisoning. But yeah, he, and inside, so, in his the Hall of Fame desert, the elevation... Food. I would say throughout this whole thing, the one guy I felt the 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 worst for 
Like, like uh, yeah, though a guy I felt the worst for, Scott Burrell. I mean, Scott Burrell had a, like, was a promising prospect, had a chance, had a decent career, and you get the feeling that, like, Jordan ruined his life. Just trying, because, because he couldn't be who Jordan wanted him to be, so he just always was throwing crap his way, and he was the butt of every joke, and he never became anything. Yeah, well, I mean, he only played for the Bulls that one year, so he... I mean, I think they've really just cleaned house after that. He probably could have had a decent career with them after Jordan left. But I think they were buddies. I think that he was giving shit because they're buddies, but I don't, I don't really think that he was bullying him or anything. I think he was trying to push him to be better, and he was not He was not the personality that that was going to work for. Well he, well, he was like a party animal. He said, like, you need to get some sleep. You're always up all night partying. Like, you need to get some sleep. Which is why he's probably the biggest stick man in the whole movie. <laughs> so speaking of that i i asked if you guys had any awards that you wanted to give out like we do in our deep dives mm-hmm. so your biggest stick man is scott burrell yes and i i would i would put him what did i put him as i gave him something oh i gave him worst performance <laughs> because because yeah, because it, he it, yeah he ended up with like no career um and the one thing I remember, and I'll, I'll say this too, that you could kind of add to that as, as maybe worst performance. Uh, Bill Wennington, I remember he was like the most notable one left on the team the next season. And he was the one that got the mic for the home opener the next year. It's like, how bad is it when your balding white's backup center from your championship run is the most notable player that can give your opening speech the next well, season? Well, it's because Kukoc didn't um, speak good English. That's true. That's true. But my, uh, I, I would say my favorite minor character was Terry Francona. <laughs> yeah. Mine was BJ um, Armstrong. That's... I thought he had the best stories, and he actually had the best story post-Bulls career, too, against against uh, the Bulls. I, I, yeah, I liked... That was good, too. I liked I liked uh, BJ, that, his game that he had against, against them. But my... the funny thing was, he didn't try to say anything about it, because he knew. It's like, oh, man, I just... I, I had a great game, but uh, that... That's not going to bode well for me later. <laughs> My favorite minor character was Barack Obama, former Chicago resident. Yes, that's the thing. Like my worst performance go- goes to Michael Wilbon because I feel like he brought nothing to the table as a Chicago guy. Like Obama was better, and uh, Adonde was better, and like all the guys that they brought in. But Wilbon was just like, why is he even on this? Like he's doing nothing. I I, I like how you had. All right, Jordan played in Chicago. Let's let's uh let's interview uh, Obama. Oh, uh, Pippin's from Arkansas. Let's interview Clinton. And so you've got these two former presidents talking about that, like, actually had, had growing uh, when they were younger, had these experiences with these young young kids that, that became the, the cornerstone of the Bulls' uh, dynasty. I thought it was kind of cool. My biggest stick man went to Gus, the security guard. Maybe, I, I don't know if he was that epic of a stick man, but they talk about how he was a badass on the Chicago police force for a long time. But, like, if jo- if he has the respect of Jordan and he becomes a, a father figure to Jordan, you know, that, that that's, a, that's a formidable uh, stick man career, I would, I would assume. That's not bad. I feel like if you were to say, give, like, an award for, like, or maybe it could be, like, an LVP. I'm going to say LVP is Scottie Pippen. Because I feel like he had he had more questionable decisions in that run than anybody, and it almost felt like yeah he was great on the court, 
and they won despite his off off the court uh, decisions that he was making. Whether it was you know, oh, and and even even the the um, quitting on the team in the playoff game because he was going to give Kukoc the last shot, or or him him holding out for a new contract, or him you know having his surgery like the day before the first game of the season because he didn't want to ruin his summer since they weren't paying him. I mean, he and and like. Like Todd said, there was no way Scotty was coming back, which guaranteed the fact that Jerry Krause was going to blow it up and start from scratch. Uh, I, I'm giving I'm giving Scotty LVP because it, it was almost like yeah he contributed a ton on the court, but uh, but he was they won despite him at times instead of because of him. Well, they they did everything to paint him as uh, in that way. Like the the documentary definitely is trying to say that he was a bad teammate and Jordan even says he was selfish and I know Pippen's like pissed about that because he was the first person he thanked in his Hall of Fame speech like obviously Jordan knows that Pippen was the reason why uh yeah, he was able to win his six championships but I don't know it it, it he d- definitely had a lot to lose by the way that they were showing it when they're not airing any of uh Jordan's dirty laundry out there it's all Pippen stuff so I, I get what you're saying but in the similar way my LVP is uh, Patrick Ewing, because Pippen's dunk on Ewing is still probably the most epic dunk I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. They showed up like 20 times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you could just kind of say what the... I You could tell, I, I will say this, you could tell like the only team, the only team that like went toe-to-toe with the Bulls that Jordan actually respected was that Pacers team they played in the Eastern Conference Finals in 98. With with Reggie and with Mark Jackson and Larry Bird coaching, that's the only team coming out of it that he, even now, you know, what, twenty over 20 years later, he showed any respect for and how he talked about it. Can I say my LVP? My LVP yeah. is a con- controversial take. All right. My LVP is Pearl Jam. That was a terrible song to end this series okay up to that point you had had a pretty awesome playlist you got some biggie smalls you got some ll cool j you even have some beastie boys thrown in there okay a little bit of outcast toward the end of the series what the fuck is with pearl jam i mean that that song had nothing to do with anything there's no connections to michael jordan there's no it it's a seattle you know seattle what it 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 ruined the whole mood of the of the series and it just reminded you oh yeah espn is behind this the sports the sports bros they they want to throw in the bill simmons people they want to throw in some pearl jam and to me it just took took it all out of the element i'm sorry if that offended you todd as a fan I don't even remember that there was a Pearl Jam song. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't even watch the end credits. Like, I don't know what you... <laughs> the last song, when, when Phil Jackson was talking about how they made a big bonfire and MJ wrote a poem, like, that, that was a Pearl Jam song. And I agree. Like, it was so unmemorable. It was a terrible way to end the series. It was akin to Mr. Holland's opus, the, the song at the end credits of that. It, it, they, they, <laughs> they could not stick the landing. Well, um, I will say I'm I'm kind of excited that uh, that ESPN has decided to keep Sunday nights as uh, as kind of this documentary series as they're starting their new Thirty for Thirty season tonight, um, and working through some stuff with that. So uh, that's going to be cool uh, since we got nothing else to watch to have something looking forward to uh, every Sunday night. I forget tonight is Lance Armstrong, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it's enough Lance Armstrong stuff. I'm not. I don't know if I'll even watch it. Yeah. Did you guys come up with who would Nicholas Cage play? That's really the only award I care about. 
Um, gosh. Jerry Reinsdorf. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good that one. Was, that's I was thinking one. that. May, maybe Phil Jackson? I went with uh, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I love the way you threw Malone down like a dish rag, brother! Yeah, I could see it. I could see that. I could see that. Well, uh, he, tra- he, he right, was well, going to play the wrestler, so... Yeah. Well, that was that was definitely fun over the last five weeks to be watching that, and uh, and it was it's been good to check in with that uh, every uh, every week on here, and it's sad to see it go. But like I said, there's more stuff coming up, so we'll uh, we'll see what we uh, what we get there. All right, well, let's get into our featured movie review. We're a little ways into this already, but let's hop into this and talk about. Um, a movie that uh, I think is it's kind of unique and in uh, in the story behind how we got this movie. Uh, this is the first uh, major studio movie to go to a uh, to a direct to streaming like like Netflix uh, throughout this whole pandemic thing, and that is the Lovebirds. We just need to find the guy the police are looking for. Do you suggest we actually go out there and solve a murder? It's locked. Did you think it was one of those men-only doors? All we need is a name, and then we're in the clear. Hey, man, it's been a minute. Uh, directed by Michael Showalter, starring Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani. Uh, this was originally supposed to come out in theaters on April 3rd. And uh, when this happened and all theater releases were canceled, they, uh, Netflix bought it and released it this weekend. So we have this movie that was meant to be in theaters um, that we didn't have to rent for 20 bucks on uh, on streaming. We could just watch it off of Netflix. So it's Oscar eligible. We're talking about it. It's and it's Oscar eligible because it had the because um, it had the intended theatrical release. So this is the story of uh, of Leilani and Gibran who are um, They've been dating for four years. Their relationship's in kind of a rocky spot. Uh, they decide they're going to break up, and when they, as soon as they decide that, uh, they hit a guy on a bicycle, and which leads to a series of unfortunate events where they get carjacked. This guy kills them, or kills the bicyclist, and then uh, they look like they've been, uh, they're going to go down for the, for the crime. So they decide they're going to try. And solve the crime instead of going to prison for it. Um, it is definitely trying to be like date night or game night, something like that, where you take this couple, throw them into the middle of a crime ring, and see what happens. Um, however, where movies like that get it right, this movie, I think, gets it really wrong. Um, the the two stars, Kumail Nanjiani and, Le- and Issa Rae, are really funny. And it feels like the filmmakers know that and try, instead of allowing them to just kind of be funny in what's going on, they stop very often and say, hey, hey, let me show you how funny they are. Hey, did you guys forget they're funny? And so it's like they're in the middle of this really dramatic scene and they decide to stop for like two minutes at a time and be like, oh, we're going to tell jokes back and forth to each other now. Uh, So you can remember how funny these people are. And it really was distracting and took you out of everything and just kind of ruined the whole movie and because of that it felt where date night and game night and movies like that feel very authentic and fun and the comedy just comes organically 
the comedy in this felt so forced and so just trying to generate laughs. Um, I saw someone someone say that they really tried to like it, but it kind of made it impossible, and that's kind of where I'm at with this too. I'm giving it one and a half stars. Um, it it had some laughs in it, but it was trying way too hard to to get them, and uh, and it ended up just being kind of disappointing too. All right, so that's where I'm at. Todd, where are you at with this? Uh, I agree with some of what you said. I, uh, you said date night, game night. I, I think it's trying to be like Twenty One Jump Street, but in and also it's also trying to be like this like stupid people being uh, caught up in a crime plot thing, like Thirty Minutes or Less, which is why I don't think it would have been a good movie at the box office. Like the R rating, it doesn't have any cool R rated stuff. Like I don't think anybody's gonna go see this because of Nanjiani or Issa Rae. So I, I think it would have been a flop similar to Nanjiani's movie last year, Stuber. But, um, I don't know. I, I thought the sporting characters were fun. I like Anna Camp, but I don't really know why she's in the movie. She's hardly in it at all. And the guy from Boardwalk Empire that was the bad guy, he's he's sort of fun to watch. Uh, I, I like the, the first, like, 20 minutes. It is sort of this, like, awkward, sweet, uh, romantic thing. But then it turns into, like, this action movie. And I, I wasn't really buying it all that much. But it, I still did think it was somewhat fun. But uh, like the characters kept saying, these characters are really annoying, and so I can't think it gives up get above you know a medium rating. I, I have it at two and a half stars. I did I did enjoy watching it, but I I just I, I didn't like the direction it went. I think that Nanjiani and Issa Rae, who are really talented writers, would make a great movie together if they actually were involved in writing it instead of just like starring as these two basically anonymous people that could have walked out of a like a like a knockoff Woody Allen movie or something. Yeah. I also felt like it was trying to be like the comedy version of Queen and Slim. I got a little bit of that, too. Okay. Anyways. Um, Alright, so I gave it one and a half. Todd gave it two and a half. That, that means, Zach, you're going to give it like three and a half, right? Uh, I'm giving it three. I'm not quite as, as high as that. <laughs> but uh, I liked it more than I think both of you, especially you, Terry. Um, I thought the characters were pretty funny in this movie. Um, I, I would agree with you. There's not a lot of belly laughs in this movie. But uh, it left me smiling most of the time. And I think Issa Rae and Camille Nanjiani are crazy talented. I love Issa Rae's show, Insecure. I think that's one of the funniest shows on TV. Um, I was halfway expecting the conclusion of this movie to be Camille and Issa uh, announcing the Oscar nominees for next year, but uh, that did not happen. That should have been the last scene of this movie. Um, yeah, so, okay, this movie is total, is it, yeah, it's a total ripoff of Game Night and Date Night. However, I didn't like either of those movies, so I'm glad that this movie was not those movies, because I kept on thinking about those movies and remembering how much I didn't enjoy them. And I enjoyed watching this movie. Like I said, it, was, it wasn't great. I think my favorite aspect of this movie was the fact that I didn't have to pay money to see it. Like, if I had actually gone to the theater, if I had driven, you know, 35 minutes, because I drive about 35 minutes to go to the cheap uh, Cinemark in Kansas City, which I will never go to again. But, you know, uh, if I had done that, okay, and uh, blown a whole Saturday afternoon on it, I would have felt really disappointed. But the fact that this is on Netflix makes me a lot more enthused about the movie. I will have to say, I fell asleep a couple times during this movie. I thought the funniest part of the movie was when they had to break into a character's phone at a, at a dinner party. That scene was actually legitimately funny, and I actually legitimately laughed at that. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's three stars, just because I'm, I'm feeling generous, and it wasn't as bad as those other two movies. You are giving three stars to a movie you fell asleep during? Twice. Yeah. Yeah, twice, yeah. Twice. 
It wasn't long naps, you know. One of the times I woke up, I was, I felt like I was, I thought I was watching Eyes Wide Shut, and then I thought, oh crap, did we turn this off? So you know, but that was cool. It was an interesting how, experience. How, how much of a boost did being able to watch it at home give it? Star wise. Oh, Totally, totally. I, I, I even said, like, the fact that I didn't go to Kansas City, waste a whole half of a day going to the movie theater, shelling out 20 bucks to see it, totally makes me like this movie more. If, if this had been a theatrical viewing, what would it have been? Probably two and a half stars. Two and a half? Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's still But do, do you guys agree? You, you, I don't think it would have been given a good it, movie like, in the theater. one star. Absolutely yeah, not. Probably, yeah, I, I, I think Camille flopped. Nanjiani and Issa Rae are really funny. I've always... I, I like them. Yeah, I mean, but are you going to a movie if, because of them? Is this going to be a $50 million box office movie? I really, really doubt it. I don't think... I think it needed to be PG-13. The R rating does not make any sense. Like, it, it, it doesn't have anything that would make it cool R-rated. It doesn't have super, like, interesting true. violence or, like, uh, any creative curse words or anything like it's just like two people that could have easily had a pg-13 movie and that would have cut down the the box office anyway there there was the the very carefully planned orgy though yeah that, yeah they definitely had that in their google calendar you're telling me the scene where they break into his phone wasn't funny like i thought that was really funny stuff it was it was it was it was pretty funny. And so I thought was, they had a re- I, it, really nice, believable dynamic between them. Like, the arguments they get into, I think, are really realistic and, and funny. That was the it, best part. It, yeah, they have a great, it, I think, great chemistry. I felt so many of the sidetracks that their conversations... Like, when they're tied up in, like, in the barn, and how they just end up having, like, an argument with each other in the middle of it. It's like, okay, it, it felt so... See, that kind of so stuff forced. I like, because that's the way yeah, they are in real life. Either. That's the way they are the entire, like, the entirety of their relationship. That's why they like each other, is because they cannot stop bullshitting with each other. Exactly, and, and that was a funny scene that was kind of out of left field. You don't see a lot of scenes like that in movies, and uh, it, was, it was funny. It worked. The more, the more and more you diss on this movie, Terry, the more and more I'm liking it. <laughs> okay. What well, if this our, movie gets nominated for some Oscars and Issa and Camille Nanjiani announce themselves as the nominees? Well, they they both have have announced the nominees in the past, so yeah, I wanted um, to point that. So out. <clears throat> yeah, so our our friend Adam Daly uh, of Adam of Adam, oh he liked this movie. Sideways. He gave it three stars. Uh, he gave he gave his review to us in writing, so I'm gonna let tell you here. So. He repeats some of the stuff. He says, this film is totally this new decade's version of 2010's Date Night. Uh, switching out the original leads of Steve Carell and Tina Fey, we get the equally funny Camille Nanjiani and Issa Rae. The film does not have a lot of promise from the trailers, but a lot of the scenes I laughed out, I laughed out loud from the in the trailer. Uh, the corresponding scenes were altered in the final product, so I was a little disappointed in that. There are still laughs to be had, and I would watch this again. However, at the end of the day, the laughs can only get you so far. I enjoyed the two leads, but the film let them down. The tone felt a bit all over the place. Then that super awkward police interrogation scene happened. I knew from that point on I could only give this film two stars and nothing higher, but it's a high two stars. But he would watch it again? Uh, I think, yeah. Because it's on Netflix. I could see. Because it's on Netflix. Well, and, and I could see there's there's some movies that are that are not great, but still rewatchable. So I, I get that. I get that. 
That, that sounded like a um, positive review. The two stars was kind of out of nowhere. It sounded like he enjoyed more of it than he didn't enjoy. I agree with his with the what he said about the tone was kind of all over the place, and 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 his point that the film let down the two leads. The leads are better than this film is. Well, you know, in our in our post COVID world, we may never have movies again. So if this was, the, it, it, you know, just like Bob Costa says about MJ, if this was the last time we ever see Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae in a movie, how how glorious a, a final uh, a, a vision it is. Well, there you go, there you go. All right, so we're all over the board here. I'm at one and a half. Adam's at two. Todd's at two and a half, and Zach's at three. So, <laughs> what does that say? It it says it, it's free on Netflix, so go watch it. <laughs> it's a Netflix movie, which means yeah, it's gonna be in and that. That's, range. that's the other thing. It felt like a Netflix movie. It did feel it like did. a Netflix movie. And it was gonna be at the actual release, so I, I agree that the fact that it ended up on Netflix is gonna serve this movie well. All right, let's move on. Uh, it is time for our spotlight segment. In this segment. We have been counting down, or not counting down, we've been talking about the best of the best from this last decade, especially in terms of the Oscars. And we are doing that again this week by looking at Best Director. So we're going to look at the Mount Rushmore of Best Director winners from the last decade, from the 2010s. Um, this is a really interesting list. Um, of the 10 winners, uh, there are two repeats. There's one that won his, um, so there's, yeah, two that won two. There's one that won his second. Um, and there's only one in the entire group that is American, which makes this a really crazy list. So, and also this year more than oh, pretty, there this last decade more than any other time, I you might say more than any other decade, you had more splits in picture and director than like ever before. So you have a lot of non-picture winners winning Best Director um, in the last decade. So here are the ones that we're looking at. We're looking at uh, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, Damien Chazelle for La La Land, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu for The Revenant, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaratu for Birdman, Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity, Ang Lee for Life of Pi, Michelle Hasnovicius for The Artist, and Tom Hooper for The King's Speech. Todd, you are first. Who is your submission for Mount Rushmore Best Directors? Uh, well, so half of these come from Mexico. It would be really be a shame if none of them made it. But, I mean, it's I, I think I... I, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll take the easy one and say uh, Junho Bong, uh, Parasite. I It was probably the... The I think I liked his movie more than any other movie that uh, won this category, and it's a, a movie that only he could have made. The, I, I can't see any American director or any international director making the movie that way, and it was a, an amazing win, an amazing moment when Spike Lee announced his name. I, I, I'll go with that one. What was a better moment, Spike Lee announcing that Bong Joon-ho won or Spike Lee actually winning the year before? I, I mean, it, I don't know. It depends on what you're looking for. I, I was, I mean, I love the surprise of of uh, shocking wins and Bong Joon Ho actually winning. Then yeah, I, I'd say that's that's the better moment. Okay, all right. They were both great moments. Because we all had Sam Mendes winning. There, there was no way he was winning director. Parasite had an outside shot of picture, but there was no way he was winning director. <laughs> I predicted Bong Joon Ho on this podcast. 
I'm just going to p- p- point that out there. Go back and listen to the transcripts. <laughs> Rewind that. Is that how you, li- you listen uh. to transcripts? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Zach, who do you have as your submission? All right. Yeah, Todd definitely took the low-hanging fruit there. But I think what some people forget is that Parasite was the first film, first foreign language film to win Best Picture. It was not the first foreign language film to win Best Director. That was the year before, which is my pick, which is Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, which is not a film I loved. I know Terry put it his number one. Um, I personally actually would have given it to Yorgos Lanthimos uh, from last year. But if you're going off of, I really like what Todd said, if you can't imagine anyone else directing it, then I think based on, on that sort of precedent, I, I think uh, Alfonso Cuaron is, is sort of the clear winner there. I love the fact that it's not like a huge, spectacular, special effects driven movie as a lot of these best picture winning or best director winning films are. Um, I think he won the, the director, the best director award because his story was so intimate and personal in his life. And I think Academy voters really liked that. And even though I felt like it was an imperfect film, it was a film that I, I, I now look back on and regret. I would have been so satisfied if that had won best picture instead of Green Book. So I feel a little bit more sympathy toward the film. I feel a little bit more sympathy toward Alfonso Cuaron and the first time a director ever won a Best Director Award for a foreign language film. Uh, you know, Alfonso Cuaron's a great director. Won twice this decade. Uh, his his direction of Roma is is pretty awesome. And you didn't have to pay to watch it. Yes. Exactly. I think the lesson here is when you don't have to pay to watch things, the movie gets better. Even though I paid to watch Roma in a the theater and it, it, it was worth it. Yeah, and I did not, and I still thought it was the number one movie of uh, of 2018. And I think it's telling that it it was an, an absolutely beautiful film, even if you watched it on the small screen. And I think that's going to the fact that you're saying it didn't have all the CGI and special effects stuff. It's just a beautiful film. Absolutely. All right. Well, those were my top two. So now i got to figure out what I'm going to go with. I'm... I'm going to go with uh, Damien Chazelle for La La Land um, for a couple reasons. One, I, he is the only American to win this award in the decade. I don't think that's necessarily significant enough to, to put him on, on the Mount Rushmore, though. However, I think he might be the, um, if you're talking about like emerging filmmakers of the decade, he's got to be number one with a bullet, as he made three outstanding films that were his first three features in Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. And the fact that he's he wins his first Best Director Oscar in, what, when he's like 26, 27 years old, um, for this uh, amazing 30, film that's... 31, 32, I think. 31, okay. 32? Okay, anyways. Uh, but he makes this amazing film... Um, uh, that's really uh, an ode to, to old classic Hollywood musicals, but still feels very modern. Um, it's another one that's beautifully shot, doesn't rely on all the special effects and CGI. I think, really, we've picked the three movies on this list. Well, I guess there's there's a couple others, but um, the three notable ones on this list that didn't have all the CGI and special effects, those are the ones that we picked because um, they, they are that... Um, significant and that uh, that well shot and uh, I am so excited to see what Damien Chazelle does next because of everything that he's done so far and La La Land was definitely the one that got the most attention at the Oscars and so uh, I would have lo- I would have loved to see it win over Moonlight 
Uh, neither were my number one of that year, but I, I liked La La Land a lot better than I liked Moonlight. But um, Damien Chazelle is an awesome filmmaker, and if you're just talking directors of the decade, he definitely belongs on there. So the fact that he's one of these winners, I'm putting him on there. All right, so you guys right. chose my seventh and eighth choices, so... <laughs> Holy uh... cow, dude. All right, well then let's talk about this fourth submission here. So we still got... We still got one Quaron, we got a couple in Yaratus, we got a Del Toro, an Angli, a Hasnavicius, and a Hooper. Are there any like we're like disqualifying and, and taking out right away? Hooper. Tom Hooper. Hooper, okay. Yeah. The worst, well, the worst best director moment of the decade, for sure. <laughs> well that's just, that's more because of the fact that he beat Fincher, not that he it was that bad of a Yeah, but it was probably was the worst movie of all of these ten, right? Yes. Uh yes, I mean it's close, but Bird, I mean... Birdman was 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 not great either. I like Birdman, but Birdman I would say Birdman kind of has a taste in my mouth, kind of like King's Speech, and the fact that it beat Boyhood, just like you guys are mad that King's Speech beat Social Network. But I think Ang Lee is almost disqualified because had Ben Affleck been nominated, he probably should have won, and I think that's a good point. So. And that's not even Ang Lee. I wouldn't even put that as a top five Ang Lee film. So I don't really consider that a viable choice. It's such a weird movie to be a part of the Oscar conversation. It felt like if Ang Lee was not the one behind the camera, it never would have gotten the recognition. Yeah, that's a good argument. And it could have been the exact same film, but if it wasn't Ang Lee, it wouldn't have had the, the recognition. I mean, My, so I, was gonna, us, I was going to say yeah. Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, but I mean, we already said Cuaron. I don't know if you want to do him twice, but I, I'd be okay with it. Yeah, that's what I. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think if you're talking about like really a, impressive directing feats, I would go Gravity. I mean, that's a movie that looks. It, it, I think it's aged pretty well, and um, it, it looks cool, and it's a good story, and uh, yeah, it works. It's, it, it would be my choice as the fourth. Yeah, I think if you're going to go with the more the more CGI, special effects-driven films... Because, like, The Revenant's um, a good movie, but it could have been directed by anyone. I mean, it's, it's yeah. not like that has Inaritu's stamp on it or anything. And, I mean, and same I, with... And, go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Gravity and The Revenant were the, were the only two that I think really um, could be considered in that, in that way. Shape of Water and Birdman... Um, I'm not a I like a I'm not a huge Shape of Water fan either. I mean it was it was a really good movie, but Pan's Labyrinth was better. It, but yes, that's distinctly Pan's Del Toro. That that is high war directing there, I think. Yeah, but it's Pan's Labyrinth's a better movie. I mean it's right. like and it's you know, Pan's Labyrinth I mean, uh Shape of Water is, is yes, it's absolutely in Guillermo del Toro's wheelhouse, but my problem with that movie is that like Come on, dude, grow up. Let's make a different movie. Let's not just remake the same movie every movie, but whatever. Um, does Hasna Vicious belong in the conversation at all? No. I don't think so. Although I didn't think Roma did either, but whatever. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin it, it, never it... won a directing Oscar. Michelle Hasna Vicious did. It's a travesty. Is a is it crazy? It's crazy to think that two black and white films won Best Director this decade. 
That's just, that's just remarkable. All right, are we going with gravity? It sounds like we've, we've kind of got a consensus consensus yeah. here on gravity. Yes. Even if it means Quaron gets two. I'm okay with that though. I he think that's half crazy. of the Mount Rushmore. His face is on their twice. Well, that's okay because Mexico has half of the best directors. So. Touche. Who who wins another first? Uh, Inyaritu, Cuarón, or Del Toro? Del Toro, because he only has one. I'd say Inyaritu, probably. He has more movies that I'm, are contending. I'm going to say Cuarón. Cuarón hasn't... Um, what? These are the last two movies he's made, right? That's true. And Cuarón so, ha- has the lower... Thr- like, Cuarón hasn't made bad movies. He's generally made pretty good movies. The other two are capable of making bad movies. Because what? Before Gravity, it was Children of Men, right? Yeah. And before that, it was, it was what many say it was... Yeah, it was probably... And a lot of people think that may have been the best Harry Potter movie, too. Because uh, you actually had an artistic eye behind the camera. Just look at Inyaritu, though. He has not had a miss. Yeah. Well, Birdman. <laughs> yeah, which one in Best Director and Best Picture? I wouldn't say that's a miss, regardless of if you like it or not. Hey, yeah. it, doesn't it all come Amores down to Perros, if I like it or not? Foreign film winner. He's got Babel, Best Picture nominee. He's got Beautiful, two Oscar nominations. He, he, I mean, he doesn't miss. So, is there a Best Director that should have won this decade? Besides David Fincher and Rick Linklater? I mean, besides I th- those two, <laughs> I feel like that is is playing into our uh, decision making whether we want to admit it or not, because those are two of the most grievous oversights in Oscar history. I think all three of us can sort of agree on that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you look at Hooper winning in twenty ten. He beat Fincher for Social Network. He also beat Darren Aronofsky for Black Swan, which easily could have been there too. And that that was kind of a kind of a crazy one. I'm just kind of looking through the years. Hasnavicius really had no competition, unless you want to say Terrence Malick for Tree of Life. Well, personally, I, I um, say Paul Thomas Anderson or Jordan Peele should have won over Guillermo del Toro. And I think yeah. those are—I mean, those are pearls pretty undeniable that they were better movies. Yeah. I, I think George Miller should have won over uh, Inari2's second Oscar. I was halfway expecting that at that ceremony too, but didn't happen. Well, it's because it won everything else. Then they gave Best Director to Ang Lee when he won, his movie won everything. I don't know. It's weird how that works sometimes. I think the only other one you could add to that list is Ben Affleck for Argo, who we already mentioned, too. But he didn't even get the nomination. All right, well, we got our Mount Rushmore. Uh, Bong Joon-ho, Alfonso Cuaron, Damien Chazelle, and Alfonso Cuaron. Um, Adam sent us his Mount Rushmore for Best Director... And his is Bong Joon-ho, Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity, Alejandro González-Iñárritu for The Revenant, and Ang Lee for Life of Pi. Seems about right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm a big fan of Life of Pi. I thought it was a great movie. Um, But it didn't feel... Nothing about it felt, you know, very Ang Lee. So, okay. Let's move on. It's time for power rankings. All right, power rankings. Zach won our competition last time of guessing Adam's list, and 
I think really in reaction to my last list of the best blockbusters of the last decade, Zach decided to do the most Zach thing ever and give us this category. So, Zach, tell us what we're doing. We are looking at the top films that have a thousand votes or less on IMDb. Now, what Terry says is partially true. I mean, this is a reaction to Terry's bullshit power rankings from a couple weeks ago. But I have to say, and Todd can back me up, Todd and I have dreamt about this list, okay? We have talked about doing this for a long fucking time. I would say, I would dare say it went back to Vegas 2015 when we were starting to talk about this. I also have to say, kind of in unequivocal terms, I have never been more excited for power rankings or maybe any segment in the history of this show than what we're about to do. So don't let me down, Adam. I, I know your list, but I'm just excited to hear what what everyone else says. I, I love this. I mean, I love the, the I think the, the thrill of watching movies is talking about those movies that no one else has seen and recommending them and, and finding new discoveries. And uh, I just, I love it. I, I cannot wait for this. Th- this has been literally the, the thing I've been looking forward to the most over the last two weeks of my life. And that is depressing. Yeah, I'm I, I'm with you. This is an awesome power. Because, I mean, I had two movies that qualified for this list in my top ten of last year. I watch these obscure-type movies all the time. The John Cassavetes <laughs> Award nominees. Like that. I, I, get, I get this shit all the time, and I, and I love it. I, I can't wait to see what you guys say. I, I will say I, I definitely like the fact that um, IMDb made this list a whole lot easier in the fact that you could just sort all your rankings on IMDb by how many times other people have rated them. Uh, so that made this list really easy to do. So, um, Zach, how many films, did you count how many films you had qualify for this list? No, because I couldn't figure out how to do that on IMDb, because I'm stupid. Um, so, no, I, I, I just kind of went through my list and came up, I, I came up with about 40 or 50 films, somewhere in there, and uh, yeah, Todd had a lot more. Yeah, I had 121 so that I counted. You have to do it on the app. That's how you do it. Oh. On the app on your phone. Okay, I yeah. did not know that. Um, I had 15 movies that qualified. Yes! Yeah. Adam texted and, me the uh, other day, and he had eight. <laughs> so. And I, I would say, like, half of mine I've watched, like, within the last year or two. So. <laughs> it's interesting. Okay, well, Zach, this is your list. You're going first. Okay, so a couple things I want to preface with. First of all, um, I've mentioned a few films these last couple... Because like I said, I'm so excited for this list. I actually watched a few films that had under 1,000 votes. Um, I mentioned a couple last week. I'm not going to put those on my list. So um, the few that I have watched, um, I'm just not going to mention. I, 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 I mentioned I talked about Drunks the other week and I Used to Be Darker, both of which are excellent films. I, I told Todd to watch Two Step. I'm not going to mention that, even though that's a really good one. And Vizanti, which I've mentioned a lot on this podcast. Uh, I'm just not going to mention those. And then I also made the somewhat controversial decision, I guess. Um, I'm not going with any documentaries. I feel like there's way too many kind of loose ends and unpredictable components to how a documentary is distributed. So therefore, I mean, I've seen a lot of documentaries with under, I didn't even count documentaries in the 40 or 50 films under a thousand votes. I've seen a lot of documentaries that have almost no votes. I actually kind of came across a couple documentaries that weren't even on IMDb that I've seen. So it's just, it's way too unpredictable and sketchy. So I I really stuck to, to narrative film as much as I could. Okay, I'm gonna start my list at number five. Number five, is a film from New Zealand from 1980. 
2. And it's a film that sort of informally put New Zealand on the filmmaking map. You know, if you think about New Zealand in the 1990s, you think about Jane Campion, you think about uh, some awesome filmmakers coming out of there. My filmmaker is Roger Donaldson, and the film is Smash Palace with 850 votes on IMDb. This is a really awesome movie that no one saw, but it did it did make sort of an appearance on the film circuit. Ebert gave it four stars. It might have been in his top ten list of that year. I can't remember, but it's about this uh, guy who's uh, Al Shaw. He's played by Bruno Lawrence, and he's basically this. He owns this like uh, uh, auto repair shop that's like just basically a trash heap for a bunch of old and abandoned cars. And his wife, who's a French teacher in the village they live in, she's kind of pissed off at him. She she thinks he should sell the joint they have a daughter and as the the course of this movie goes along their marriage really becomes strained and to the point where she divorces him she takes the kid and she shacks up with the local police officer and the Bruno Lawrence character gets really pissed about this. He decides in his anger, his irrational anger, that he's going to kidnap um, his daughter, take him, uh, take her with him, go out into the middle of the forest in, in New Zealand and um, hold her captive, hold her hostage, basically, until they can kind of reconcile their differences. Um, this is a really awesome movie that's really about, like, uh, how insane you go when you're in the middle of marital conflict. It's sort of the perfect movie for married couples couples and coronavirus that can't stand each other. So uh, I think it's a really relevant movie. It has some great performances in it, um, especially by Bruno Lawrence, who's an actor that I've never seen him in anything else, but apparently he was really big in New Zealand cinema for a while. This obviously does not have any big stars. Um, you know, Roger Donaldson went on to the United States later in his career and actually made some some interesting movies like Cocktail and Species. He directed the movie Marie, which I mentioned on last week's podcast with Sissy Spacek. This is an awesome movie, very much worth checking out. It's sort of like a hell or high water meets like some kind of like like a marriage drama, but set in New Zealand. It's awesome. Check it out. Smash Palace. It's amazing. Perfect. All right. Okay, I'm uh, I'm gonna go next. I think it'll be interesting to see if any of us have seen any of the movies on anyone else's list. Uh, <laughs> so, like I said, I had I had 15 movies that qualified. Um, I was not able, so I was not able to make any stipulations. I tried to stay away from movies I've mentioned before, but you know, I can only try so hard. Um, most of the movies on my list were, and, and this is what I realized, the movies that, that made my list were either random TCM watches I've made of old classic films that nobody else has seen, uh, or they were random documentaries I've caught at some point, or they were random film festival watches that, that we had. Um, so those are really the only ways that I see movies that, that end up on this list. So... Uh, there was one movie I stayed away from, I'll mention in my honorable mentions, that uh, I reviewed once on the podcast already. But uh, number five on my list, with 715 votes on IMDb, is from 1952, and this film is called This Woman is Dangerous. Uh, it stars Joan Crawford as a, a head of, a, of this uh, gangster group that uh like she's she's the mob boss and um she finds out that she's uh got something going on that's gonna make her blind and uh so she goes um she's trying to like get out of the business to because she's gonna be completely uh you know disabled from blindness 
uh, finds a doctor that's able to uh, that's able to help her, but uh, then she ends up falling for the doctor, and everything goes goes sideways. It was it was an okay movie. It wasn't a great movie. Um, I watched it because I'm like, ooh, here's a random movie with Joan Crawford in it, and I haven't seen many, if any, Joan Crawford movies, so I decided to check it out. Um, it it's it, it was fine. It was a fine movie, but uh, I, I would say worth watching simply because some of these old classic movies, I mean, I there's nothing better than just throwing on a random old classic movie and checking it out. So, yeah, number five on my list, This Woman is Dangerous. Yeah, I thought I, I had some Joan Crawford, some older movies on this list, too. I thought about Johnny Guitar with Joan Crawford, which is a very kind of unknown cult film where she also plays sort of a gang leader, ironically enough, in the West and goes head to head with Mercedes McCambridge. That movie somehow has 15,000 votes. So I was way off on that one. But yes, I, I would love to see that movie. I've never before heard of we it. Go, before we go any further, I think the most fascinating thing that I discovered in the middle of all this is um guys i think we actually have some influence in the in the uh in the world of movie watching um i'm pretty sure i never went back and checked this out but i, 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 te- I, I texted todd about today. this yeah you, corro- you you all right so todd corroborated this so um we like named a segment that we do sometimes the come to the stable segment right picking a random movie that nobody's seen that none of us have seen and watching it and we talked about this, and we and we watched this movie, and we all really liked it. And we talked about how, on the podcast, that this movie has under 1,000 votes on IMDb. So people go out there and watch it. Well, since then, that was, what, six months ago? Um, it now has 1,025 view, uh, ratings on IMDb. Yes. So we single-handedly gave it, I, that must have been like 50 ratings, because I think it was at like 975 or something, and so we even said, hey, let's get this movie over 1,000, and it's over 1,000. And it's streaming everywhere. <laughs> Nobody's turning on that movie randomly on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, 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 you, you got it. I mean, I think we all rented it to watch it, but yeah, it, you can find it, like, streaming anywhere. Go watch this movie. Yeah. All right, I just had to throw that out there. I'd forgotten to mention it before. So, so does that mean people are watching Alone Yet Not Alone out there? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we didn't like that movie, so... <laughs> that couldn't right. have had over a thousand votes, though. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, it's under. It's on my dishonorable mention that I'll be giving that, later. That can um, never go over a thousand. <laughs> All right, Todd. What, what What's number five for you? Okay, my number five is... Uh, the absolutely most obscure DVD that I own. I'm not even sure I like the movie that much. Uh, it's got 746 votes, and it's called Stories of Lost Souls. Uh, it's like an anthology movie. I think it's eight parts. And the main reason I have it on here is because it's super obscure. And uh, it's got like two or three segments that are really good, including the like by far the best live-action James Gandolfini performance ever, including The Sopranos. Uh, and there are parts that star the likes of like Hugh Jackman, uh, Keira Knightley is in there, Paul Bettany, even like Wee Man from Jackass is in there. I have no idea how they got all these like people to be in this movie because I am pretty sure it probably had like a five dollar budget, but uh, like two or three segments are really good and I don't know. I I came across the movie at a pawn shop one time and I, I bought it and hey, here's making an appearance on my list. His first appearance on any of my power rankings and probably the only one ever unless we do Gandolfini performances. 
This has nice. a crazy cast in it. Yeah, how does a cast like that have less than a thousand votes? Because no one's ever heard of it. I've never met anybody that's ever heard of it. <laughs> I had never heard of it. I saw the cast. I was like, I gotta. I think I'll buy this movie. It was like two dollars at a pawn shop. I could see nice. Wee Man being seriously an underrated actor. Yeah, I don't remember his segment actually. That was not one of the memorable ones. The Cape Lancia one was good. The Gandolfini one was good. All right, Zach, number four. Okay, number four for me is a movie from 1989. You know, when The Artist won Best Picture in 2011, everyone was like, oh, silent movies. We love silent movies. They're so awesome. Why did they ever go away? Why don't we make more silent movies in modern times? And you know what? There was a silent movie made in 1989 with a all-black cast. And that movie is called Sidewalk Stories. And it is directed by Charles Lane. And it's a movie that got three and a half stars from Ebert. It's a movie I've always liked. It, it is a very Chaplin-inspired movie that is set actually in contemporary New York City, but it is shot in black and white. It is completely silent, and it has no intertitles. Definitely following the F.W. Murnau logic of no, no uh, words anywhere on screen. Um, it tells the story. It's basically like the, the story of the kid, the Chaplin movie. It's, it's about, uh, Charles Lane is the director and actor in this movie. He plays an artist who's you know a starving artist in New York City and through these circumstances unusual circumstances he comes into possession of this uh, abandoned little girl uh, she's like a infant baby essentially who's actually played by his actual daughter in real life and he has to find a way to get his that child back to her mother and so there's a lot of comic hijinks that ensue the sort of uh, joke of this character a little bit is that even though he's uh, an artist a starving artist who lives in, in basically a shack that burns down over the course of the movie um, he refuses to ever ask for money because he's so unselfish and his heart is so pure so much so that when he takes uh, this child to uh, the house of a woman that he's dating um, he says uh, let me go to the bathroom with her real fast and then he, he actually gives her a shower real fast and she doesn't even notice it's a really funny moment in the movie um, I did rewatch this movie for this podcast by the way because I, I love this movie so much uh, Charles Lane really cool director um, people saw this movie they loved it it didn't really get a big release because the distributor were the distributor were assholes but Charles Lane got a three picture deal from Disney uh, as a result of this movie Disney uh, sort of corrupted his artistic vision for his next project which I haven't seen um, but this is a really really good movie it has a, a really good social message in it about um, the homeless and about uh, you know the, the lack of agency uh, the, the lack of a voice that homeless people have it also has a very early appearance by Edie Falco who plays the woman who is kissing in the horse carriage and uh, it's an awesome movie. It is currently streaming on um, Canopy. It only has 291 votes, which is a shame because this is a, a wonderful, uh, uh, very cute, sweet movie that um, everyone praised the artist. Let's give the praise to some uh, black filmmakers who actually are making um, stories that are before the artist. And frankly, it's, it's, uh, Sidewalk Stories is a better movie than the artist. So watch Sidewalk Stories. Really good movie. Not the side of the movie one. you mentioned to our uh, cab driver in Vegas, though. Oh, what one was that? Silent movie. <laughs> oh no, this is this is better than than Mel Brooks, and I'm sh I'm pretty sure that has over a thousand votes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, number four on my list, possibly the movie I was most surprised had under a thousand votes. This movie has. Hold on. Wait for it. Wait for it. 
It has 859 votes on IMDb. Um, it is a Netflix documentary, which is the reason I am I was so shocked that it only had it had under a thousand. Um, it is a documentary about uh, the following people: Jane Dietrich, Jerry Sloan, Myrtle Cagle, Marion Dietrich, Gene uh, Hickson, Irene Leverton, Re Hurl, Gene Stumbo. Sarah Gorlick, Bernice Stedman, Geraldine Cobb, Jane Hart, and Mary Funk. These are 13 women that history has forgotten, and it's a shame they have. This film is called Mercury 13, and it's about the 13 women that were accepted into the NASA space program during the space race, and then were rejected because they were women. Hmm. Um, so it is looking at... Um, they, they all tested in 1961 as trying to get the first woman in space. Uh, but once Russia got the first woman in space, they all were really forgotten about. And uh, NASA said, no, we're not going to send women up because we can't be the first anymore. And these 13 women passed all the tests that the men had passed to become an astronaut. And, uh, and then were, had their hopes and dreams dashed simply because they were women. It's a really cool documentary, and it's worth checking out. It's It only came out two years ago. It's from 2018. Um, and I remember seeing quite a bit about it when it first came out, and so I was shocked that less than a 1,000 people actually saw it and rated it on IMDb. Um, but I'm a huge fan of the space race, so I watched this movie like the first weekend it debuted on, I, on, uh, on Netflix. Um, really cool story. Um, again, I love space, so I'm going to watch anything about the astronauts. Uh, some of these women ended up going on and, uh, flying like the space shuttle and things like that, but they, they were brought in originally as a potential to, uh, to fly the, to, to fly on, uh, Mercury or Gemini missions and be the first women in space. And then they, they decided to pivot away from that when they realized they couldn't be the first. So Mercury 13, number four on my list. Have you guys heard of this? No, but I know you said Jerry Sloan, R.I.P. By the way, I'm I'm sure it's a woman actually, but yeah, that's it's a woman, yeah, yeah, not not the former, not the former coach of the uh, of the Utah Jazz, and yes, and yes, R.I.P. to him. No, this was this was a a, a five foot three, thirty three year old woman from in nineteen sixty one that became an astronaut or tested to become an astronaut. Yeah, so okay. I I will be watching this movie this week. That sounds phenomenal. I'm 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 terrified that I've never heard of this movie. That's tragic. You got to bring this up on the podcast more, man. That looks dude. Awesome. I, how did you not hear of this? I, I mean, never it was, heard of it. I never heard of it either. I I, I I remember like seeing commercials for this two years ago, right before it came out. This was like a big deal, and then nobody ever saw it. You probably saw commercials on the Smithsonian Channel or something. You know what? That might have been it. <laughs> Todd knows what I watch. Okay. Uh, Todd, number four. My number four, I got in a random, like, $5 box set of drive-in movie classics, and it's got 447 votes from 1979 called Van Nuys Boulevard. And it's definitely the best in that collection, and probably in that genre, I think. It's kind of a hangout movie. It's, like, about drag racing and bikers in Van Nuys, California. Uh, it's got sort of a party atmosphere. There's, like, tons of nudity, and it's it's really fun. The filmmakers and actors are all pretty much anonymous, but it doesn't really matter, I don't think, because, I don't know, I think Tarantino would, like, eat this shit up, honestly. Like, these types of movies are, are fun to watch every once in a while. Most of the movies in that, like, collection were 
I think there were like 20 movies in it. Most of them were really bad, but this was like the one that I was like truly good. I, I give it like three and a half stars. And uh, I, I felt like I mentioned it here because otherwise, when the hell am I going to mention it? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that movie simply because I run the website and I had to put up your rating of it at one point. <laughs> yes, that sounds right. So like when you, when you say hangout movie, are you like talking about what Tarantino calls Dazed and Confused and Rio Bravo, like in that tradition? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that, that kind of that kind of idea. And but it's like drag racing, so I don't know. But it's sort of like I don't know. It, it's got grindhouse movie elements to it in a way, but it's also just sort of like a hangout, like Rebel Without a Cause, American Graffiti, those kind of things. All right, Zach, number three. Okay, my number three film is a movie that uh, came out a couple years ago. IMDb lists it as a 2017 movie, um, but I think the theatrical release was 2018. It made Grierson's top 10 of 2018. It's a movie that I've always been intrigued to watch, and I did recently rewatch it because of this podcast episode. It has 458 views, uh, but I promise I've wanted to see it for a long time. It is a movie called Life and Nothing More, directed by Antonio Mendez Esparza. And uh, Grusin, when he did his top ten of that year, kind of compared it to Moonlight. And on the surface, it it, it does have it does share a lot of the same um, sort of plot overtones um, and beats as Moonlight. It is about a uh, young black man or young uh, young black teenager um, who's played by Andrew Bleachington. He's also called Andrew in the movie, and he's growing up in Florida with his mother. Uh, played by Regina Williams, who also plays a character named Regina. Regina Williams was nominated for an Independent um, uh, Spirit Award for this movie. Um, And uh, their relationship is less dysfunctional than the relationship between Chiron and his mom in Moonlight. Um, The Regina Williams character is not addicted to drugs like the mother was in uh, Moonlight, but uh, she is a working mother who is struggling um, because she also has a younger child at home, and Andrew is, um, he's 14 or 15 years old, and he's getting into some trouble at school. He's hanging out with people that he shouldn't be hanging out with. Over the course of the movie, there is a man that enters um, their life, who's played the movie by Robert Williams, he develops a relationship with the Re- Regina character, and it uh, leads to conflict between the son and this and this um, uh, man. Um, this is total sort of uh, like naturalism. Um, this is a very you can tell it's it's low budget indie style movie. These uh, actors are non professional actors. The scenery looks really authentic. Um, there's not a whole lot of what we would call quote unquote, like plot in this movie. There are definitely some interesting political overtones in this movie though, because it does take place in 2016 and the director very consciously shows, you know, Trump's election. And then we see Andrew get in a situation that I think is pretty similar to, uh, Trayvon Martin and, um, other sort of atrocities that we've seen involving young black men in Florida. And, uh, so the movie does have a a bit to say about the criminal justice system and the kind of racialized uh, police tactics used. But the truth is, this is much more of like a neo-realist tradition. And um, Antonio uh, Mendez Esparza, uh, I mean, he comes from, from, you know, watching an interview with him, he says he comes from a a neo-realist tradition. Um, He found basically these people on the street. They were non-professionals. This movie feels real. It it, it is absolutely, I mean, the the title's perfect, Life and Nothing More, that describes the whole movie. Um, It's really, really well done. A beautiful piece of filmmaking that I think is even better than Moonlight. And, uh, you know, 458 views. It's sad that this movie isn't getting more attention. It did get some love at the Independent Spirit Awards. Um, it's an awesome, awesome movie. Thanks, Grierson, for putting it on uh, your list. All right. 
right. Yeah, I remember that when you, that movie uh, won the, the Cassavetes Award. I, I I haven't seen it. I, I it hasn't come on video or anything that I, that I've seen. So I haven't watched it. Yet. It's it is currently free on Prime. Really, really worth watching. I will add it to the list. I was gonna say we know what Todd's watching this week then. All right. Number three on my list is another random uh, TCM find I had last August. Uh, this movie is from 1937. It has 350 uh, ratings on IMDb. It is called I Met Him in Paris. Uh, this stars Claudette Colbert, uh, Melvin Douglas, and Robert Young as the three leads. Claudette Colbert uh, it plays Kay Denham who is engaged to be married to kind of a dull, kind of just not a safe choice, uh, played by Lee Bauman. And so she decides to go on one last kind of fling to Paris, where she meets, um, where she meets Robert Young's character, Gene Anders, and they go, um, they end up going on a skiing vacation to the Swiss Alps. And Melvin Douglas's character, George Potter, goes along as the chaperone, but really it's going along to watch over Robert Young's character and kind of protect Claudette Colbert. And it ends up turning into a love triangle between the three of them. Eventually, Lee Bauman shows up too, and you've got three men really just fighting over the one woman. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you go back to the 30s, and someone like Claudette Colbert is, is really fun to watch in movies like this. Um, the... The snow scenes, I mean, they go skiing, and you watch them ski and stuff. It, it's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you, you've got some serious chemistry between your leads there. It, it's a fun movie. So, yeah, number three on my list, I met him in Paris. It's weird to think of Melvin Douglas in movies where he wasn't 80 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, 1937, so how old How old would he have been in this? He was born in 1901, so yeah, he's 36, but he's he definitely is the elder statesman in this movie, too. Um, he's he's kind of the the older friend that's that's along to to have the the voice of reason and ends up he, falling for the girl, too. He's like the captain of the Olympia Dukakis All-Stars. You can't think of him in anything where he's not old. <laughs> Either that or he just always looked old. Like Jack Palance? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Wilford Brimley. Yeah, some of these people just have never not looked old. I've kind of felt that about Morgan Freeman. I mean, has Morgan Freeman aged in the last 40 years? No. No. No, he looks exactly the same. All right. Todd, number uh, number three. Uh, my number three comes from 1971. It is called Gamblers in Okinawa, which I think the international title was like Sympathy for the Underdog. Uh, it's directed by Kinji Fukasaku, who is probably most known for a movie he made 30 years later called Battle Royale. But this is like a really badass gangster movie. Uh, and uh, it's about like a Yakuza gang who is trying to like reboot their reign when they moved to Okinawa after they were taken over in their previous city. It's almost like samurai-inspired in a way, uh, which is really cool. Uh, you don't see many gangster movies that are also like almost samurai movies. I think it's my number two of 1971. It's a killer movie, and I was like shocked that this showed up on the list. 762 views. Like, come on. I mean, this is this is a really popular Japanese director. That, that's kind of a shame. That is impressive. 
Right. Yeah, there was there's like a whole Yakuza cycle in the 60s and 70s for Japanese movies. I'm not saying that because you know I took a Japanese film class at, at KU and the director show or the 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 instructor showed a lot of Yakuza films. I'm not saying that I didn't see part of this movie. I think it's possible. Not enough to remember or put a rating on it. No, not enough. To, not enough to do that. But uh, yeah, there were not a lot of movies. To claim. Not enough to claim, no, sadly not. But it does look intriguing, and shout out to Battle Royale. I mean, from the director of Battle Royale, that's quite a yep. statement. 30 years before, still still making a radical shit. All right, all right. Zach, number two. Okay, my number two movie is actually a tie between two movies, um, but they're both made by the same director. And that director is a Texan director named Eagle Pinnell, who was this cult underground kind of legendary figure in the Austin film scene for a while in the 70s and 80s. And the first of his movies um, on my, uh, for my number two pick is The Whole Shootin' Match, which allegedly is the film that Robert Redford saw in 1978 and was so inspired by it that he created the Sundance Film Festival. Why aren't more people watching this movie? This is the movie that spawned the Sundance Film Festival, apocryphally, but, you know, a lot of people say that that's the case. Um, the whole shooting match is this really super low-budget movie about two dudes in Austin, Texas, and uh, they really don't do a whole lot except, you know, they drink a lot and they go to honky-tonks and listen to country music. And one of them, uh, Lloyd, is this sort of engineer, and, and, and Frank, his friend, sort of goes along with him, and they're always, like, scheming about these new inventions that they want to make one one day lloyd actually invents a pretty cool mop and he sells it and they kind of get screwed out of the profits of it so um they're angry about it so they just go drink and they get drunk and they rough house and it, it's really slice of life stuff rick link later loves this movie he says it's in part the inspiration for days and confused and it also is part of the reason why he chose to film like house all of his studios in texas the other film of um, eagle Pinnell, which i actually think is a slightly better film although it's not quite as well known as the whole shooting match is last night at the alamo which he made in 1983 this is a movie with 238 views on IMDb or votes on IMDb by the way the whole shoot match only has 200 and this has largely the same cast in it it's also a black and white super low budget movie with um, you know much of the same characters essentially but this is a movie that I think actually looks a little more polished you can tell that Pennell uh, became a, a bit more accomplished um, in these those few years and this is about um, sort of a slice of life portrait of this honky tonk bar and the last night that it's open and uh, the, basically the characters that frequent the bar and, you know, Todd talked about hangout movies like Rio Bravo and Van Nuys Boulevard. I mean, this is a total hangout movie, too, but like Texas style. Eagle Pinnell, I had heard of him. Um, he was a pretty legendary figure because of the notoriety these films got. He was also a legendary alcoholic and um, drank a lot on set and sadly died right before his 50th birthday of alcoholism. Um, so, you know, sort of a leaving Las Vegas type story there, I guess, maybe someday to be made. But these two are really interesting movies, The Whole Shoot and Match and Last Night at the Alamo, if for nothing more than the fact that they are the inspiration for the Sundance Film Festival. And they're also sort of the influence of what we call like regional cinema out of Texas. And a lot of filmmakers like Richard Linklater and Robert Rodriguez, uh, really, and Allison Andrews have admired these films and have talked about um, the influence that Eagle Pinnell had. So check them out. They're really cool. All right. I don't right. like the tie, but I like the I like the choices. I, I yeah, I didn't want to do a tie. The thing is, I liked last night at the Alamo just a little bit more than the whole shoot and match. It was a little more polished, but the whole shoot and match is a little bit more um, famous. 
They it's both the, deserve to be mentioned. It's the movie that started the Sundance Film Festival, for Christ's sake. Why don't more people know that? Jeez. Because only 200 people have seen it. <laughs> well, have rated it on IMDb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you guys were putting together your list, did you just feel a tinge of sadness? Like, to think of the thousands of people that put together these movies and the fact that so few people have watched them, like, that, that's, that's a tragedy. Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right, number two on my list is a, a film I've mentioned actually fairly recently on the podcast, and we might actually get some talk about it in a little bit. Uh, I don't know. But number two on my list is Harold and Lillian, A Hollywood Love Story. Uh, it's a documentary I mentioned fairly recently, so I'm not really going to talk about it. Instead, I'm going to mention a couple other, or another film that um, that I haven't watched yet. But it qualifies, and I'm going to watch it soon because it's sitting on my DVR downstairs that I plan on watching, like, in the next week. Um, and it's another documentary, kind of an inside Hollywood documentary called Floyd Norman, An Animated Life. Um, it's only got 565 uh, ratings on IMDb, and it's about the uh, it's about the first African-American animator at Disney uh, named Floyd Norman. And so uh, it's available to rent a couple different places on uh, on streaming. Uh, I recorded it off TCM a few weeks back when they were doing their uh, at-home uh, film festival. Uh, so uh, that's one I'm going to be watching, and I'm getting, so I mentioned that instead of talking about Harold and Lillian, since I've already mentioned it, and one of you may have watched it for uh, for trivia. So we'll one be of talking us may have probably soon. One <laughs> of you may have. So yes. Um, so yeah. So that's uh, that's that. So um, yeah, go check those two out. Harold and Lillian's easy to find. Floyd Norman, you got to rent. So, uh, yeah. Harold and Lillian, by the way, Harold and Lillian, I, uh, let's see here, has 683 ratings on IMDb, which is just a shame. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. It's an awesome movie. Okay. It's funny you mentioned that. Two. Like, I was looking at the the Lovebirds yesterday, and it only had, like, 500 views. So I was like, is Adam going to put this on his list? But now it's up to, like, 4,000, so it doesn't qualify anymore. <laughs> So Netflix movies almost aren't movies to people who vote on IMDb, I think. Um, that, that must be. My number two is kind of cheating, but I'm going to say screw it. It's got 572 views because it technically is listed as a TV episode, but I don't really get how they make those decisions. I'm, I'm going with Playing for the Mob, the 30 for 30, because I don't understand how Without Bias has its own IMDb page as a film, and this doesn't, so I'm like, whatever. It's clearly the best documentary that ESPN has ever made. It's the the. Be- one, probably the one or two best parts in Wise Guy, the book, uh, about the Henry Hill saga. Uh, it's only mentioned, like, in one line in Goodfellas. Uh, it's about the uh, point-shaving scandal of the mob and Boston College players in the late 70s. And they got uh, Ray Liotta narrates it. And uh, it's got some awesome interviews with Henry Hill and the FBI. Basically, everybody was involved. Uh yeah, I, I think I think it's like the the one t- thing that actually should have made its own narrative movie. I, I I mean the Henry Hill saga is amazing, but I I think they could make a whole movie about just the, this part and uh, playing for the mob. Absolutely, if it was a theatrical release, it would be on, among my best movies of 2014. You All guys, right. you guys like All that right. one? Yes, that was definitely one of the I've best seen episodes. That one. It's I been don't a while. I've seen that one. It's been a while, but I remember really liking it. Terry, how have you not seen that? I recently got ESPN Plus, so I should watch it. Are, is all that stuff not on Disney Plus, the ESPN stuff? It's not on Disney Plus, but it's on ESPN Plus, I think. So, uh, 
Well, there you go. I, you I, should I, definitely I should watch, watch that one. And I believe I, it. I may, I may have caught a little bit on ESPN Plus of uh, Game One of the 1992 NBA Finals between the Bulls and the Blazers. Like I turned on ESPN Plus, like what's on here? Ooh, this game's on here. It's like it's a shrug shoulders game. So uh, yeah, I watched a little bit of that. Yeah, Clyde. Mm-hmm. When the Criterion Collection releases Goodfellas on Blu-ray, they should include this in their box set. They should. I, I mean, I don't know if anybody involved in that movie with, other than Leota uh, did anything with it, but uh, that'd be a, an awesome touch. It'd be like a three-disc thing. I don't know. That's cool. All right. Zach, number one. Okay, my number one movie comes from 2011. It's a movie that uh, was nominated for Best First Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards. It lost out to Margin Call. So, I mean, you can't really go wrong there. Margin Call is a great movie. This is also a great movie. This should have been on my top 25 list of the decade. I should just redo my top 25 list. It is a movie called In the Family, and it has 731 views on uh, IMDb. If Terry's right, you know, maybe we can propel this movie over a thousand. That would be awesome. Um, this is a movie written and directed and starring um, a person named Patrick Wang, and I've never seen him in any other movie before. He's made a couple since then. Um, it's a movie that uh, is about a uh, a gay couple in Memphis, or uh, in Tennessee, not Memphis, Martin, Tennessee, and um, two fathers of a young uh, boy, and one of the fathers, um, I, we'll, we'll go in a little bit of spoilers, I guess, but one of the fathers uh, bites the dust in the first 30 minutes of the movie, and what results ultimately is um, their son was the dead father's biological son, and so what, what results is a um, dispute in the family about custody rights, about this, uh, this uh, young boy to uh, his other father, and um, the, the dead father's family kind of intervenes in the story and it becomes sort of a legal drama and there's definitely a little bit of Kramer versus Kramer in this movie which is part of part of why I like it but it's much more of an art, artsy movie too um, it's very much about uh, the dehumanization of uh, being a gay couple particularly with the Patrick Wang character not just being a gay man but also being a gay Asian man in a pretty um, hostile southern community southern small town and over the course of this movie, you know, he goes to lawyer after lawyer. And, you know, this is a very kind of pre-gay marriage movie. It shows that, you know, all the lawyers basically say he doesn't have a case. And so what he has to do to try to get any hope of custody or ever seeing his young child again is, is he has to circumvent the legal route and actually try to become friendly with them again in, in the hope that um, his, his dead husband's or his, his dead uh, boyfriend's um, family will let him back in the family, so to speak. It's a movie very much about discrimination. It's a movie very much uh, about uh, this kind of um, hostile, uh, discriminatory environment in the mid-2000s in, in the South. Uh, it's a riveting movie. It's also two hours and 49 minutes. It's a really, really long movie, um, but it's it's awesome. I mean, there are long takes. There's definitely some Bellatar stuff going on in this movie with the, with the long sort of motionless camera. But you know what? I don't mind when a story is that riveting and we've got characters that are that fascinating. This movie ends with a really big court deposition, but it's not really a court room movie per se it's much more about um the identity politics that are, go on in this society and patrick wang is amazing as an actor in this movie also extremely accomplished as a screenwriter and director i cannot recommend this movie high enough uh in the family one of the best movies of the 2000s let's get it above a thousand votes okay people it's a great movie 
So I've not seen this one, but th- there's uh, the movie he made a couple years ago, A Bread Factory, it has been on my list forever, but it has yet to become available any in any way. Uh, and that's like a two-part, like, five-hour movie, and I, I, uh, I'll definitely check this one out, but, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've seen that director's name before. Yes, I want to check out more of his stuff for sure. He makes long movies, though, so you have to commit to it. But once you get into this movie, it's a bit... Like I say, it's two hours and 50 minutes. It is, like, such an easy two hours and 50 minutes to watch because the story is that gripping and fascinating. It's a movie that deserves more attention. All right, all right. Number one on my list is another documentary, and this is one that... um, I watched really because of uh, of my job. Uh, I actually watched it at a uh, at a um, professional development day uh, at at school. Uh, all us teachers watched it. It's a documentary from 2015. It has 120 votes on IMDb. It is called Most Likely to Succeed. Uh, this is a movie uh, looking at reimagining what education could look like. Um, looking at how our education system is set up for a world that we are currently not living in. And uh, so what can we do to change that and to fix it? And it focuses on a school in San Diego that has completely remodeled the way their school works. And uh, they don't they do not do uh, grades. They don't do report cards. Instead, what they do is they do like a showcase where they're, they're saying, okay, we're going to learn about making something or doing something or producing something. Because that's the kind of world we live in, is you you figure out what you want to make and you find out what you need to do it. And it's teaching the process and, and you learn the content through the process of whatever you're doing. Some uh, do some sort of artwork, some may uh, put on a show. Uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating look. It was really inspiring to watch of what we could do with education. Um, if all the preconceived notions of what education is are thrown out the window. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating one. Uh, Zach, as a teacher, I would say you should check this out. It's definitely worth, worth looking at. It's currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, yeah, most likely to succeed. My number one. Yeah, I think I'm going to be watching every movie that has been mentioned on this podcast today. That is why we did this. Because these all sound fantastic. I've never heard of that movie, but it looks really cool. I hadn't heard of it either, but it was like we we all sat down in a in our library and like, okay, we're gonna watch a documentary together about what education could be and what can we pull from it, and it it was just awesome. It was it was super cool to look at what this school did and uh, and just dream about what what you could pull from it and what you could do um, in uh, in teaching our kids for the world that is that is out there. All right, Todd. Number one. My number one was, it was my first instinct when I heard about the list and I just stuck with it. It's from 2003 with 540 votes called Manito. Uh, it was directed by Eric Eason, who hasn't done much since other than this movie that I, he wrote this movie I kind of hated called A Better Life that was nominated for Best Actor somehow. Uh, this movie stars Frankie G, who, if you recognize him at all, it'd probably be because he plays Wrench in the Italian Job remake. Uh, it's uh, this movie that takes place in uh, the inner city of Washington Heights, and Frankie G plays this kid named Junior, whose brother is graduating from high school and going to college, and the family has this history of crime, 
and it kind of leads to some crazy shit. It's all sort of a, like a one-night kind of uh, drama, and it's beautiful and devastating. I think it's my number five of 2003. Uh, it's got like a $25,000 budget, but you can't really tell. It looks really polished and really, really good for uh, such an indie movie, and... I own the DVD for some reason. I can't remember where I got it, but uh, I've, I've loved this movie. I've watched it a few times, and uh, it was, yeah, the first thing I thought of, I was like, oh, I'm sure Manito's probably got under 1,000 views, and sure enough, 530 votes. 540 votes. That's my number one. Tell me you watched this because Wrench is in it. No. I I don't I just, I, <laughs> I I don't think so. I, I got the DVD somewhere, but I, I found that out after. I was like, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, Wrench is in, like, two scenes. He or, he, get, he buys a... Or no, he gets a ham sandwich from Charlie Theron. That's hilarious. Cool. Neither awesome. of you heard of it, Zach? Yes, I've heard of it. I remember Ebert's review of it, which I'm looking at right now, and I've wanted to see this movie for a long time. I you're, Maybe you don't believe me, but just believe me. I remember Ebert reviewing this movie and thinking it looked really good. Awesome. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. I didn't look. Wouldn't it be great if all 15 of these movies ended up over a thousand votes in like the next month? That would be awesome. Yes, then this podcast would be very outdated. Yeah, it would be. Alright, Zach, do you have honorable mentions? Yeah, I have a few honorable mentions. Um, I, so, uh... I went with, um, okay, I'll just name them. I, I said uh, Keep the Change, which is a really good movie about uh, uh, two um, autistic people in a romantic relationship. Really sweet movie, available on Canopy to stream. Kung Fu Master by Agnes Varda, one of her most underrated movies with Jane Birkin and, and her own son, um, about uh, a uh, taboo relationship between a grown woman and a 14-year-old boy. Awesome stuff. Great French entertainment. Uh, the Learning Tree, Gordon Parks, one of the best Kansas movies ever made. Uh, Kevin Wilmot showed this in his class. Shout out to Kevin Wilmot, and uh, it's it's an awesome movie. Tomorrow the World, um, a movie with Frederick March about a little boy who grew up in Nazi Germany. This movie takes place in 1944. He comes to the United States, and he tries to start a Hitler youth gang at his school. Really, really funny stuff. And then uh, C'est La Vie, great French summertime movie, sort of in the Eric Romare tradition. And finally, Mississippi Damned by Tina Mabry, great African-American director, African-American cast. Really good stuff. Um, Yeah, awesome, awesome movie there. All right, all right. Uh, I have I have one honorable mention and then some dishonorable mentions. Um, my one honorable mention is a film that I mentioned on this podcast before, so I left off my list. That's uh, Shut My Big Mouth, the Joe E. Brown film um, that I mentioned, Wild West, slapstick comedy. It was a lot of fun, but I mentioned it fairly recently, so I left it off. Harold and Lillian I couldn't leave off because it was like one of only two three-and-a-half-star movies that, I've, that I have that qualified. Um... And then my dishonorable mentions, uh, I have um, a movie called Hello Again, which came out in like the last three or four years. It's a, it's a musical of an off-Broadway show that was put to film. Uh, it was showing at the local theater around the corner, like one showing ever. I was like, well, hey, it's uh, got one showing, and I was the only one in the room watching it, and... Uh, it wasn't that good, but it made me feel good that I caught this one random small-budget indie movie that uh, nobody had ever seen. Uh, then there was um, the lowest number of votes for any movie that was on my list. Hold on, i got to look up exactly how many votes. 
um, is actually a movie I watched with uh, with Todd. <laughs> it yes. was uh, it was randomly we went to so for my birthday one year, uh, Todd gave me a uh, a trip to the Seattle International Film Festival, and then a a stop at Nike Town, and then a Mariners game, but we walked from the theater in Queen Anne to Nike Town and then to Safeco Field. Um, and that was a long walk. But uh, we watched this movie. It's got 78 ratings on IMDb. It's called About 111 Girls. All I, I don't remember really anything about this movie other than I didn't like it. Um, and uh, it was it was kind of lame. But it was cool to go to a film festival. I, I just think those those are awesome. And then the yeah the walk through the entire city of Seattle was fun too. Yeah, that was an adventure. Uh, and then... Yeah, that was definitely an adventure. And then um, the there's two more on my on my dishonorable mention. One is of course Alone Yet Not Alone, which uh, let's see here currently has um, 716 ratings, which is impressive considering it was an almost Oscar nominee in the last ten years. Um, so uh, there's that. And then the other one is one I haven't seen. I've actually tried watching it twice within the last two weeks. It's on my DVR downstairs. I recorded it off a of TCM, but I've uh, fallen asleep to it twice now. Um, I want to watch it. I it, it actually looks interesting, but I've just been too tired whenever I've started it. It's called She's Working Her Way Through College, and it's an old Ronald Reagan movie <laughs> where you've got an old burlesque dancer who decides that she's going to go to um, go to college and... Um, and try to make something of herself. And Ronald Reagan is a professor at her random college in the Midwest. Like, I think it's even in Kansas. And, um, and he like directs the, the college productions and she becomes a star of the, of the show. So yeah, those are my, uh, honorable slash dishonorable mentions for you. Awesome. <laughs> uh, Hello again is a really weird movie and a really weird musical. It, it's, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. It's like sexual encounters through song of uh, a bunch of characters in a bunch of different time periods that, like, transcend time. I mean, it's, it's like, off-Broadway meets indie, indie film, which is why it was, a, it was what it was. Anyways. Okay, Todd. Okay, I have first honorable mention i reviewed earlier this year on the podcast and i didn't mention it because it still came out this year it's called inside the rain with only 123 views i also have then this 1943 movie that was on tarantino's top 10 of all time called hi diddle diddle i also have this uh it's like a half animated movie called mars uh with mark duplass uh that's also in there and then i also have the Maybe the best Australian movie I've ever seen called Praise, which was like the directorial debut of John Curran. Uh, my, on my top 10 of 2018, I had Solar's Point. Um, 2019 top 10s, I had The Passing Parade with only 55 votes and Socrates. And then I have three sports documentaries. Sonic's Gate, about uh, how our team was ripped away from us. And the... Duplass, not the Duplass brothers, the Safdie brothers, Lenny Cook, and the lowest point uh, vote total of any movie I've ever seen on IMDb, which is Lynch, A History, which was my 5,000th movie I've ever seen about the great beast mode, Marshawn Lynch. 25 votes. <laughs> I thought it was going to be about David Lynch, but 
<laughs> Marshawn Lynch is all right too. Twenty-five right. votes. Okay, it is now time for trying to guess Adam's list. Is it time? Oh it's my time. god! Oh my god! All right, all right, Zach, what do you got? I'm not going to say how much time I spent trying to prepare this list, but interpret however you want. Number five, 27, Gone Too Soon. Number four, Uppity, The Willie T. Ribs Story. Number three, The Price of Fame. Number two, The Sheik. And number one, Genocide. All right. Not going to lie, I didn't even attempt this. I'm, I got, I've got nothing. I'm accepting defeat now. I did not have time to research other movies with under a thousand, or even attempt to think about what he may have had under a thousand. I accept defeat. One of you guys is going to win. Todd, what's your list? <laughs> okay, number five. I think he's going to troll us and say alone yet not alone. Number four, I have Uppity, the Willie T. Rib story. Number three, Curious George 2, follow that monkey. Number two, <laughs> Walt, the man behind the myth. And number one, genocide. Okay. Here we go. Here's Adam's list. Um, so, he says, what a topic today. Research required for sure on this one. He found at least nine movies that fit the criteria. Oh, he didn't discover that you can do this on the app either because he didn't want to have to go through all his movies. Um, hope you can get at least one of them. Good luck. Honorable mentions. Uh, making fun, the story of Funko. Uh, 943 votes in IMDb. Next, the uh, Valley of Ditches from 2017. 300 votes in IMDb. The Long Way Home from 1997. 638 votes. And Mighty Ducks, the movie The First Face-Off from 1996. Uh, 574 votes. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Number 5 from 2016. Dark Knight. 821 votes. Following the lives of six strangers before they interact at a local cineplex to watch The Dark Knight. The dread at the end of the film is heavy. This sounds that's, made up. That's amazing. Number four, Praying with Anger, 1992, 715 votes. M. Night Shyamalan's first film. An alienated teenager of East Indian heritage goes back to India where he discovers his roots and about his heritage. Interesting. Number three, Dressed to Kill, 1941, 950 votes. A detective on the way to get married hears a scream from a nearby hotel. He finds a pair of theatrical murders. It's a fun murder mystery that was enjoyable. That sounds noir if I've ever heard one. Number two, Socrates from 2019, 557 votes. Todd totally undersold this movie. It's such a sad film. I felt bad for Socrates as he journeyed from place to place to take care of himself. Seek this one out, streaming on Amazon Prime. How'd I undersell it out of my and top ten? <laughs> <laughs> and number one, Genocide, 1982. 424 votes. Your best documentary Oscar winner from 1982. Orson Welles and Elizabeth Taylor narrate this harrowing documentary about Jewish persecution in Nazi Germany. He said, I could also throw in the movie I made in high school, but I didn't want to create an IMDb page just to make it work. Star Wars The Dark Rival. Oh, yeah, I've heard about his Star Wars movie he made in high school. He sent me an image of it. I may have we, to send it to you guys. We need to review this movie. I, I think in one of his uh, YouTube iterations, he did review it 
<laughs> Anyways, I don't know. You both got number one right. I, I'm okay giving it to Todd, even though I will say I had Purring with Anger on my list. I didn't put it in my top five because he only gave it two stars on the website, and I found films that he gave a higher review, higher rating to. But Todd did have Socrates on his list, and Todd is the reason why Adam watched Socrates, so I'm okay if Todd gets it. It was an honorable mention. How about I say you guys each get half a point, but Todd gets to pick the next topic? I like it. All right. And I don't know how long you spent on this, Todd, but I will never get that time back for my life. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, clicking through for like a solid hour, like trying to. Well, we both found up the the Willie T. Ribs story, man. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I think we got to watch that. Let's just do that. That should be our reward. Well, oh, Curious man. George to follow that monkey had exactly a thousand votes, which is why I put it on there. Curious George three had less, but I went with the one that was exactly. <laughs> Uppity the Willie T. Rib story is uh, streaming on Netflix, by the way. See, we gotta watch that shit. I'm down with it. If Adam says and it's it good. And it came out this year. <laughs> is that what we're reviewing next week? I love it. I, that's I, I, our come I to the stable. It, that is our come, come to the stable. stable. Yes. I think so. I think so. The life and career of Willie T. Ribs, the controversial black driver who shattered the color barrier of professional auto racing, the first black qualifier in the Indy 500. That sounds awesome. I, I think I think we're I think we're yeah I think we've got it all figured out. Half a point to each. Todd picks next power rankings, and before we deep dive whatever we're gonna deep dive, we are going to come to the stable review, uh, up at either Willie T. Rib story. Although Perfect. who knows by that time it may be over a thousand votes because we know how big this podcast is. It's true. It's true. We do have influence. We have discovered. Hashtag influencers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it is now time for our trivia segment. Well, hold on. The uh, score is now. Oh yeah, the score. Nineteen <laughs> for me. Uh, Twelve and a half for Zach, and thirteen and a half for Terry. Although I feel like Terry should actually lose a point for not even attempting. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I would be. Yes. I would be okay if yes. you took away half a point. Take away half a point from me. But then we're all going to be. I, on... I do feel bad. I didn't even attempt. Okay, I'll take away half. You're at thirteen. Okay. All right. I lost a, a half point for that. Okay. Oh, well. All right. Trivia time. Uh, we start every trivia segment. So whoever wins trivia gets to assign movies for, uh, for the others to watch. Um, I gave each of them... I won last time, so I'm hosting. And I gave each of them the same assignment. I gave them two movies to pick from. Both with very low ratings on IMDb. Uh, not, like, low-rated movies or just very few ratings. And uh, they had to pick which one they were going to watch. So, let's see here. Todd, tell us which one you watched and what you thought. Well, you gave me three options, I if I remember right. Oh, I did give you a third option. I forgot. But I What was with, the third option? I don't remember. I mean... I don't remember either. I, I watched uh, the documentary that you mentioned earlier, Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story, which, I mean, you reviewed it before. It's about the uh, um, husband and wife who are these, like, really sought-after... Uh, one's a storyboard artist, the other's a film researcher. They're often uncredited, and I love these kinds of old Hollywood untold stories. You know, She had a interview with a 
drug lord in Bolivia to do Scarface, and she got, like, no credit for that. And he ended up becoming an art director after being a storyboard artist for um, most of Hitchcock's career, and then he supposedly was the brain behind The Graduate. It's a really cool story. It's it's also kind of this, like, love story about this, like, long marriage of ups and downs, and it's a good movie. It's an old Hollywood movie, old Hollywood uh, story, and uh, I give it three stars. It, it's totally solid, totally worth watching. All right. Zach, did you watch the same thing? I did in, indeed watch uh, watch Harold and Lillian. I feel like Todd's review is a little too lukewarm for me. It's kind of like a it's kind of like the uh, the Andrew Murray that um, uh, you know Miles and Maya drink. I feel like this is much more our speed. Um, I can't think. Uh, it's like a 92 Byron. This is a 92 Byron. This is a really good documentary. I give it three and a half stars. I think it's awesome. I love movies like this where it, you get the inside scoop about Hollywood, but it's not tabloidish. What I love about this movie is it completely dispels the notion of the auteur theory. I mean, screw Alfred Hitchcock. He didn't come up with anything original. This was all Harold Michelson, man. Like the shot from The Graduate, that was all the, the, the storyboards, okay? So it really makes you think about how much we can attribute a so-called creative genius to one person. It trickles down the system, and there are these people that you know routinely go unrecognized that made great contributions to famous movies, and these two people were high up on that list, and everyone knows them, you know? I mean, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Dan DeVito, a lot of people in this movie knew these people, knew them well, Mike Nichols, and uh, they need they need more um, attention, and they deserve more recognition, but this was an awesome choice, Terry. Slammed it out of the park. Great, great job. But the thing is, if they were completely uncredited, if the hundreds of names that after a movie do not even include these people, then did they really actually come up with, like, and did he really come up with those shots, or was that something that was described in the script or something like that? Because, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little skeptical about how truly genius these people were, or else they would be more like household names. They would, Like, he would have ended up being a director. You know, she would have ended up being a screenwriter. Yeah, but that's not the way it went, because, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical about how that actually went down. Well, he did end up becoming a two-time Oscar-nominated art director. Right, but, I mean, if, if he was that genius that he came up with, like, the shot that became most iconic from The Graduate, and he came up with, like, how Hitchcock was going to shoot, like, the birds, then, I mean, he would have become a director. I mean, But he's not even, like, credited. I think it's more just how unheralded that, uh, get it, unheralded uh, storyboarders are. I see what you did there. And how they, they're not, yeah, I see what I did there. How they're not forced to be a part of, they're not forced to be credited. You don't have to credit your, uh, your storyboarders. I think that's more what it was mentioning. Yeah. I mean, I could, but you could tell they weren't, like, compensated that much for it either. It, I don't know. It, it's a good story. I, I, I do, I do really like the, the story of them, but I'm not sure my, it, uh, it was my exactly f- that way. My favorite anecdote was uh, Lillian telling us how uh, she uh, found the uh, what undergarments looked like for Fiddler on the Roof. I love that story. That was great. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys liked it. It, it was it was such a good movie. Um, okay, so it is time for trivia. Like I said, I am hosting. Um, so I heard from Zach this week and he, he was telling me how he is, he was kind of sick 
and tired of having to do over and over again either Oscar or box office trivia. So I'm changing it up a little bit. Our trivia this week is all about um, a specific year. We've been doing a lot of, I think the 90s are kind of having a moment right now, especially with The Last Dance coming out. And everyone's kind of getting some nostalgia since we can't have any, you know, current pop culture with the pandemic going on. We've uh, we've done a lot of deep dives of older movies. And one of the years we've really focused in on is 1995. So this trivia is trivia surrounding the year 1995. Okay, you ready? You ready? All right, here we go. The first category, I've got four categories for you here. Uh, one... And one is going to be slightly related to what we've always done. Um, so the four categories, or so, sorry, the first category of the four categories is, can you name any of the movies that won an Oscar from 1995? So any of the Oscar-winning movies of 1995, there are 13 movies that won an Oscar in 1995. Now these are 1995 movies that won at the 1996 Oscars. All right. We are going to start the first category with Zach. Uh, Braveheart. Braveheart is correct. It had five Oscars that year. Todd. Uh, Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking is correct. That won one Oscar. Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas is correct. That won one Oscar. Mighty Aphrodite. The Mighty Aphrodite is correct. That won one Oscar. Uh, the Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects is correct. That won two Oscars. Babe. Babe is correct. That won one Oscar. Sense and Sensibility. Sense and Sensibility is correct. That won one Oscar. Il Postino. Il Postino is correct. That won one Oscar. Restoration. Restoration is correct. That won one Oscar. Batman Forever. Batman Forever is incorrect. Zach. You've got a one-point lead right now. Can you come up with any others? There are one, two, three, four more. Uh, Pocahontas. Pocahontas is correct. I'm trying to remember the foreign film that year. Uh, I don't think I do remember it, though. Um, Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's not right. Uh, that is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, let's see here. Wasn't the foreign film of Postino? No, the foreign film was Antonia's Line. Oh, that's a movie I've seen. That's a good movie. I bet um, that has 100,000 votes. The documentary was Anne Frank Remembered, and you also forgot that both sound categories were won by Apollo 13. Well, there you go. Haven't so, seen that uh, one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Zach is winning six to four at the moment. All right, your next category. Uh, the 1995 NFL season was wrapped up by the uh, Dallas Cowboys beating the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl 30. Can you name the starters from the Dallas Cowboys in 1995? 
I'm going to say there are 24 starters. The 11 from offense, 11 from defense, the punter, and the kicker. Todd, you're first. Uh, Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman is correct. Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith is correct. Michael Irvin. Michael Irvin is correct. Um, Larry Brown. Larry Brown. Larry Brown is correct. Super Bowl MVP. Larry Brown. Yeah, Darren Woodson. Darren Woodson is correct. Um. I don't know. I give up. He gives up. All right, Todd. I'm not a fan of that team. Uh, Moose. Oh yeah. Moose. Daryl Johnston is correct. Yep. Larry Any Allen. More? Larry Allen is correct. Got anything else? Leon Lett. Leon Lett is correct. I I don't think Dion was on that team, was he? Dion was on that team. Wow. That is the one year he did win a ring with the Cowboys. That is correct. That's all I got. Anything else? That's it. That's all you got. Okay. How about uh, Jay Novacek, their tight end? Okay. Or, uh, or Nate Newton, the other guard. Russell Maryland. Brock Marion was their other safety. Who was their um, kicker? Chris Boniol. Oh, which I would not name. have remembered until I saw his name. Uh, the only other one I remembered off the top of my head was Charles Haley. Was their defensive end. Um, okay. Zach, I thought you were going to do a lot better on that one. I didn't watch and, football until I was like 15. Okay. Well, then you're really going to hate me for this one. Oh, great. Oh, no. 1995 saw the Atlanta Braves beat the Cleveland oh. Indians in the World Series. Can you name the 25-man roster for the Atlanta Braves that made that was the World Series roster in that World Series winning run for the Braves? We are starting with Zach. And Zach, just to let you know, the score is 11 to 8 going into this. You are losing. All right. Congratulations, Todd, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. John Smoltz. John Smoltz is correct. Tom Glavin. Tom Glavin is also correct. Chipper Jones? Uh, Chipper Jones is correct. Greg Maddox? Greg Maddox is correct. How is this the only World Series they've won? Anyways, Zach. Uh, Andrew Jones? I don't think that's right. Nope, he was not around yet. All right. He's out. Or, do we, or should I give him another mulligan? Zach, I'll give you another mulligan. I, I don't know anyone else on the team. I can name okay, their manager. Then, then never mind. Okay, Todd, who else you got? Oh, uh, it's Steve Avery. Steve Avery is correct. I think that was, like, uh, Fred McGriff. Maybe Fred he McGriff is correct. Oh. Uh, uh, Terry Pendleton. Terry Pendleton is incorrect. Wow. You got out a lot faster than I thought. Um, I'm not even how sure about I David Justice? 
David Justice, Javi Lopez, oh, okay, Mark Justice. Lemke, Mark Wollers, Marquise Grissom, Raphael Belliard, Ryan Klesko, Mike Mordecai. I didn't realize Eddie all those Perez, guys are still around 95. Brad Klontz, Todd. Brad Klontz. Oh, yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and what I found out, ALCS MVP, Mike Devereaux. Anyways. <laughs> Been a while since I heard okay. that name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, last, last category here. Todd is first. Todd is winning fifteen to ten. So, and this is a short category. So, Zach, you got to hope that Todd just blows it and you run this. Uh, Nineteen ninety-five saw the Houston Rockets beat the Orlando Magic in the NBA Finals. There were nine Rockets that saw floor time during the NBA Finals. Can you name those nine Rockets that saw playing time in the NBA Finals? Zach, you're first. Uh, Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon. That is correct. Clyde, Todd. Clyde Drexler. Clyde Drexler is correct. Uh, yeah, I have no clue. So let's go with something funny like Rafer Alston. Skip to my Lou. He was uh, on my Lou is is incorrect. Wrong decade, I incorrect. think. But. Yeah, I think so. Todd, do you got any more? Their point guard, he was a white guy. He was like Mark Maloney or something. Mike Maloney? Mark Maloney was drafted like the year after this. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, you know their point guard. Both of their point guards. Their point guards were Sam oh, Cassell and Kenny Smith. Oh, Kenny you also Justin. forgot Big Shot Rob won both of those rings with them. Uh, Mario Ellie. Chucky Brown went from winning a ring with the Rockets to winning a ring with the with the Bulls. And then uh, Charles Jones and Pete Chilcutt were the other were the other two. That was a little before that, uh, my time, sorry. Floor time. Yeah, you're, I thought you you're guys the, you're the senior on this podcast. You you probably know this stuff better than we do. So I I thought that was gonna be a good category. No questions about the '95 Cornhuskers. That's the direction I thought you were going in. Well, I wanted to be a little uh, a little more unbiased, so I oh, saved with more the unbiased. major three professional ones. But you might be a little generous. So you talk, you know, the, the Houston Rockets starting lineup. Yeah, that's a. <laughs> Well, hey, I thought I was give. I thought I thought you were gonna get more than just like two of the starters you know from what, the Dallas Terry, Cowboys. Just listen to my advice. Stick to Oscars and box office, okay? <laughs> Jeez, the nerve! Uh, I thought you were gonna do better with the Cowboys, and then, I beat Todd at the so Oscars. That, That's the only thing that you, matters. You did, you did, and then I thought you were gonna you were gonna get a commanding lead with the Cowboys, and then Todd was going to come storming back with the Atlanta Braves. Uh, oh well alright well Todd wins Todd gets to pick some movies for us to watch next time and host trivia next time let's go to quote of the day uh, Todd you won you get the first quote uh, so my quote comes from the lovebirds it's Kumail Nanjiani says it and I think it uh, describes how exactly I look at movies he says I don't need to see something to know why I would hate it I've never been hit by a truck but I know it would suck so, you know. A lot of the time that's true. That's a good one. That's a good one. I almost I almost picked a quote from the Lovebirds as well, but I did not. Zach, what do you got? 
My quote for, comes from Hulk Hogan, uh, who I think should be played by Nicolas Cage. And it's when he tells Dennis Rodman after the WCW um, entrance, there are some things worth missing practice for, brother. We're nice. talking about nice. practice. So so the quote I was going to use from the Lovebirds, it's like early on when they talk about how he's a documentary filmmaker. And how they say something like documentary films are just films about real life that nobody ever sees. Something like that. And I thought that was really poignant and telling for this podcast but instead i picked another one that uh, especially as i look at my dishonorable mentions of films that kind of weren't any good that nobody ever saw i found this quote and really i found this quote because uh of the beer i'm drinking i'm drinking the strong bad beer so i wanted to find a quote from strong bad from homestar runner for my quote of the day and uh this quote i i uh yeah it's what i think about when i look at the dishonorable mentions it goes Sometimes I feel a little guilty, thinking that you guys put way more time and effort into these things than was ever spent on the source material in which it was based. That's how I feel about this podcast sometimes. We put way more time into this than some people put into their own films that we talk about. So that's what I felt when I watched Alone Yet Not Alone. (laughs) I like it. Or your strange sex musical that you were the only one who saw. Apparently, yeah. I was the only one that saw uh all right well with that we draw this podcast to a close thank you guys so much for listening we'll be back at you next week with a deep dive of an anniversary movie until then have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side despite your cross behavior i'm glad we were able to do this together